0: I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the Read Along Shakespeare Podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part four of Hamlet, so grab your copy and open it to Act Two, Scene Two. And one of the things you'll notice about Act Two, Scene Two of Hamlet is that it's incredibly long. Actually, you may have noticed that about the play Hamlet, too. Now look, the scene divisions weren't written by Shakespeare. They were penciled in afterwards. Really, what a scene is, is it's any time that all the characters on stage exit, and a whole new bunch of characters enter. What we have in this scene really feels like a series of small scenes. The only catch is that everybody never leaves the stage. You always have at least one person from the previous part staying on and then meeting new characters. It actually looks a lot like a television scene, what they sometimes call a walk and talk, with new developments every time a new character comes on and meets the old ones. And the first people on stage in Act 2, Scene 2 of Hamlet are two characters we haven't seen in a while, and two characters we've never seen. The two characters we know are the King and Queen of Denmark, Claudius and Gertrude, and they're welcoming new folks. So it starts with Claudius's line. Welcome, dear Rosencrantz and Guildenstern." You probably wondered when those guys were going to get into the play. So the king is welcoming these two funny-named dudes to the castle. He goes on. Moreover, that we much did long to see you, the need we have to use you did provoke our hasty sending. Moreover means on top of the fact. So not only did we want to see you, but we wanted to use you. You see those verbs played off each other that way? And use may sound a little harsh to us, but what it really means is to have your services. And that's something every subject wants to give to the king because it's usually rewarded. So the king needs their help, And that's why he sent for them so hastily. In other words, he asked them to come so quickly. He goes on. Something have you heard of Hamlet's transformation? So call I it, since nor the exterior nor the inward man resembles that it was. So Hamlet has been transformed, and maybe they've heard about it. Maybe the rumors are getting around. And why does the king call it Hamlet's transformation? Sith, since nor the exterior, neither the exterior nor the inward man resembles that it was, resembles what it used to be. So Hamlet doesn't look like his old self, either on the outside or the inside. And that really leaves it up to your imagination how he's changed, especially on the outside. Does he dress differently? Is it just the black clothes that we heard about at the beginning of the play? Or is he dressing very differently now that he's doing his madness thing? Is this a reference to the same way he looked when he interrupted Ophelia in her room with his clothes dirty and all over the place? And he goes on, What it should be more than his father's death that thus hath put him so much from the understanding of himself I cannot dream of. And you can see the sentence is really all over the place and mixed up. You could almost rearrange the words to, I cannot dream of what it should be that thus hath put him so much from the understanding of himself more than his father's death. But you get a really strong end with, I cannot dream of. So the king can't imagine what it is, you know, maybe other than his father's death that thus hath put him so much from the understanding of himself. It's almost like Hamlet has been picked up and moved so far away from understanding himself. Like he's been exiled from his reason. Because his father's death certainly explains why he's been depressed, but not why he's been acting crazy. So the king has laid out the problem and now he's going to say what he needs Rosencrantz and Guildenstern for, which is why they're here. He says, I entreat you both that being of so young days brought up with him and being so neighbored to his youth and behavior that you vouchsafe your rest here in our court some little time. Entreat means to request or ask really strongly. And being of so young days brought up with him means that from a very young age, they were brought up alongside him. So they are friends from when he was a little kid. Neighbored to is a great phrase. It's a total reinvention of the word neighbor, which is usually a noun. And Shakespeare repurposes it to mean like a neighbor. So in other words, familiar with or incredibly close to. Youth and behavior, I think, is another one of those that we might call hendiades. We've talked about that in earlier segments. Something like his youthful behavior. So they were really familiar with what he was like as a kid. So since they know him really well from a young age, the king is asking that you vouchsafe your rest. And that means that you agree to stay here for a while. But it's a very fancy kingly way to say that, and some little time just means some short time you know until you can figure out what's wrong with him, and the king goes on so by your companies to draw him on to pleasures and to gather so much as from occasion you may glean. Whether aught to us unknown afflicts him thus, that opened, lies within our remedy. So they're going to stay in the court for a while, and so by your company, so by staying near him, to draw him on to pleasures, to encourage him to engage in activities that he finds pleasurable, instead of this moping around and in insanity stuff that he's doing right now. And while he's doing those activities, he likes to gather so much as from occasion you may glean. Occasion is like opportunity, just when it happens to come up. And gleaning means to pick up or collect. Literally, gleaning is going to a field after they've cut the grain and picking up anything that hasn't been picked up. So it's like getting sort of spare clues that may be lying around when the occasion offers them. So they're gathering clues about whether ought to us unknown, whether anything unknown to us. And why does he switch that word order? Because to us unknown is a much stronger way to go out instead of unknown to us so whether anything we don't know about afflicts him thus affects him or oppresses him this way that opened lies within our remedy so if anything afflicts him that if it were opened if it were revealed lies within our remedy lies within our ability to heal it's kind of a medical image so if we knew what was wrong with him we could heal it and the queen pipes in because the king has been pretty mercenary here she says good gentlemen, he hath much talked of you and sure I am to men there are not living to whom he more adheres so Hamlet's actually mentioned them a lot she says is this true or not? we don't know But either they've been away, or Hamlet's been away at school, whatever reason, they haven't seen him in a long time. And she says, I'm sure there aren't two men alive that he more adheres to. Adheres means is sort of bound to, or is close to. It's like the word adhesive, it sticks to. And then she tells them, if it will please you to show us so much gentry and goodwill as to expend your time with us a while for the supply and profit of our hope, your visitation shall receive such thanks as fits a king's remembrance." If it will please you, if it's okay with you. To show us so much gentry and goodwill. Gentry is gentlemanly courtesy. So if Rosencrantz and Guildenstern will show them the gentlemanliness and the goodwill to expend their time, to spend or pass their time with us a while. To do what? For the supply and profit of our hope. Supply is giving or helping out. And profit isn't financial profit. It's sort of like the furthering or the benefit of our hope is the thing we hope for. In other words, finding out the reason for Hamlet's insane behavior. So if they do that and help them out, your visitation shall receive such thanks as fits a king's remembrance. So we'll thank you for your visit in a way that fits, that's appropriate to a king's remembrance. In other words, noticing what was done for him and remembering it. So it seems to imply that they're gonna maybe pay them off a little bit for their help. And watch how Rosencrantz and Guildenstern respond. Rosencrantz says, both your majesties might, by the sovereign power you have of us, put your dread pleasures more into command than to entreaty. So remember the king entreated them to help And Rosencrantz says, you know, both of you could by the sovereign power, sovereign just means kingly or supreme power, you have of us, you have over us, you could put your dread pleasures more into command, you could put your pleasures or wishes, and dread just means that they inspire fear with their power, so dreadful in that sense. They could put those wishes more into command, more in the form of a command than an entreaty, than a request. And see how Rosencrantz's line ends short? Guildenstern finishes it. But we both obey and here give up ourselves in the full bent to lay our service freely at your feet to be commanded. Now, we both obey means both Rosencrantz and Guildenstern obey, but it could also mean they obey both the command and the entreaty. And then he says that they here give up themselves. In other words, we give over ourselves in the full bent this is an image from archery. The full bent is as far as you can draw a bow back before it snaps. So, in other words, completely, you know, we'll go as far as we can for you, and we'll lay our service freely at your feet to be commanded. Almost as though service is an object that you can give right to them. It also seems to imply that they'll bow as far down on the ground as they can. But it implies that their service is essentially a free gift which they will happily give to the king and queen. And he echoes Rosencrantz's stuff about command rather than entreaty. So we're laying our service at your feet to be commanded. And one thing you may notice about these lines is how formal they sound. This is one of many moments in this play. We've seen a little bit with Polonius. We're going to see a lot of it later on, in which we see the way that people behave around royalty, these courtiers. And the major way they behave is fake. They suck up. They say whatever they think the king wants to hear. It's part of this overall critique that Hamlet has about the fakey behavior, you know, the fake outside hiding what's really going on inside, you can also argue that maybe it's a criticism by Shakespeare of the people around the court of Queen Elizabeth and how they're always saying what they think she wants to hear. But this is very formal formulaic language. And having lived in Washington, D.C. for a few years, I can tell you that this kind of behavior is alive and well around people of power. Power attracts all the flies. And Claudius, of course, eats this up. He says, thanks, Rosencrantz and gentle Gildenstern. Gentle here means noble, not like gentle kitten. And Gertrude says, thanks, Gildenstern and gentle Rosencrantz. She flips it. Now, some productions actually have the king forget which one of them is which. So the queen is correcting him and saying, no, this one is Gildenstern and that one is Rosencrantz. There's a little bit of a running joke in this one and in productions of the play over the years that they're kind of Tweedledum and Tweedledee. You can't quite tell them apart. Do you really need two characters in this play? No. Not necessarily. I've seen productions that have conflated it into one character, not usually named Rosenstern or Gildenkrantz, but that would be awesome. But I think, for example, if you were in a production of this, you'd have to decide what is different about Rosenkrantz and Gildenstern, their motivation, their language. So they aren't just two versions of the same guy. So after all those formalities are done and they're officially welcomed, Gertrude says, and I beseech you instantly to visit my too much changed son. Beseech is a very strong word. It means like, I beg you, I implore you. Instantly means right away at once, go visit him. And how does she describe Hamlet as too much changed. So this implies that he's very different from what he used to be. And she says, presumably to some servant in the room, go some of you and bring these gentlemen where Hamlet is. And Guildenstern says, heavens make our presence and our practices pleasant and helpful to him. So he says, basically, may God make our presence, our being here and our practices, our actions, pleasant and helpful to him. It's almost like a prayer. But for one thing, look how flowery it is. Presence practices. And you also get that echo of presence and pleasant. So it's very consciously poetic on his behalf, maybe more sucking up to her. And practices has a little bit of a double meaning. Practices can also mean deceptions. So there's a little hint that there's going to be some trickery involved. And the queen answers his prayer with, I am. Amen. So the servants take Rosencrantz and Guildenstern off to put their bags away and meet Hamlet. And just as they're exiting from one door, in the other door comes Polonius with some big news. He says, the ambassadors from Norway, my good lord, are joyfully returned. Hey, remember those guys, Voltemond and Cornelius? You know, from Act 1, Scene 2? They got sent off to check on young Fortinbras and his annoyances to Denmark. So the ambassadors who went to Norway are back, but not only are they returned, they're joyfully returned. So this implies good news. And Claudius says, thou still hast been the father of good news. Still here means always. So you're always the father of good news. How the father, in other words, you're the one who produces good news. Mother might be more accurate, but since he's a man, I guess it has to be father. Also, since we've thought a lot about his fathering practices lately, it's a nice echo there. And Polonius is flattered. He says, have I, my lord? As though what he's really saying is, yep, I have. He goes on, assure you, my good liege, I hold my duty as I hold my soul, both to my God and to my gracious king. Assure you means be assured or assure yourself. My good liege. liege is a feudal term from when there were lords and vassals and all that stuff. Liege is sort of the supreme lord. So it's another way of saying your majesty. He says, I hold my duty as I hold my soul. I regard or I value my duty as as precious as I value my soul, both to my god and to my gracious king. So his duty to his god and his king. So this is one of those statements like, oh, it's nothing. I'm just doing my duty. It's a kind of fakey humility. But this gives him a chance to break the really big news. He says, and I do think... Or else this brain of mine hunts not the trail of policy, so sure as it hath used to do, that I have found the very cause of Hamlet's lunacy. So this is great news. He's found the explanation for why Hamlet is crazy. And look at that little parenthetical there. So I think, or else this brain of mine doesn't hunt the trail of policy as surely as it used to. It's another one of his weird outdoorsman images, like the bait of falsehood catching the carp of truth. His brain isn't hunting like a dog that hunts on the trail of ascent. But in this case, it's on the trail of politics. So if I'm wrong about this, my brain isn't hunting its usual political prey as sure, as competently as it used to. It's more kind of faky self-deprecating. But this is great news. Claudius says, oh, speak of that. That do I long to hear. And look at the cool structure of that line. You get speaking on one end and hearing on the other end and those two that's in the middle. So it sounds really soaring. And it's all monosyllables. There's no long words here. So it's very simple and to the point. But Polonius is smart. He knows he has great news here. He's just going to tease it. And he says, give first admittance to the ambassadors. Admittance is permission to enter. So let and Cornelius come in first. My news shall be the fruit to that great feast. Oh, another stupid metaphor. Fruit here is dessert. So the news about Norway is going to be the feast, the main meal, and then my news about Hamlet is going to be the fruit, the dessert. And Claudius sends him off to do just that. He says, thyself do grace to them and bring them in. Do grace means sort of welcome in graciously. So he's giving him the honor of bringing them in. And Now we have a little mini scene between Claudius and Gertrude. So maybe she hasn't really heard the conversation between Claudius and Polonius. He says, he tells me, my dear Gertrude, he hath found the head and source of all your sons' distemper. Head is another word for source, specifically of water. So if you've ever heard the term fountainhead or head of a river, it just means where the water starts. And distemper can mean strange behavior or illness or specifically mental illness. What it literally means is out of tune, like a musical instrument. It can also refer to those four humors we were talking about, those weird bodily fluids that are supposed to control all of your physical and psychological attributes. So when they're out of balance, that can be a distemper. You still hear it occasionally with animals. Uh, Dogs can suffer from a disease called distemper, and it's the same term. And Gertrude is sort of skeptical of this. She says, I doubt it is no other but the main, his father's death and our or hasty marriage. She really cuts to the point, this one. I doubt, I suspect it is no other but the main. It's no other cause but the main cause. In other words, the fact that his father died and we married too fast. So it's interesting to see Gertrude criticizing their marriage and feeling a little guilty about how that may have affected Hamlet. And Claudius doesn't like that response. He says, well, we shall sift him. In other words, we'll examine Polonius closely. Sift like going through with a fine-tooth comb. But it's interesting to see him uncomfortable when they talk about the king's death and their fast marriage. Luckily for him, Polonius is back with the ambassadors. Claudius says, welcome, my good friends. Save Ultimond. What from our brother Norway? So he goes right back into smiley king mode. So what, what news from our brother Norway? Uh, the king of Norway is what Norway means. Brother, not literal brother, of course, but... Fellow king may be one way to say it. So, what does Norway send? Voltemann says, most fair return of greetings and desires. So, fair is pleasant or happy or good. And desires here are good wishes. So, he sends his greetings and good wishes right back to you. So, now he's going to lay out the response of Norway to the king's message. And it is one vast run on sentence. I'm going to try and break it up a little bit to make it easier to understand. He says, upon our first, he sent out to suppress his nephew's levies, which to him appeared to be a preparation against the Polak, but better looked into, he truly found it was against your highness. So upon our first, in other words, as soon as we presented the matter to him, our first presentation of this, he sent out to suppress, he sent out an order to stop his nephew's levies. In other words, his gathering of forces. So remember, young Fortinbras was going around getting armies, and now the king of Norway is sending a counter order saying, stop getting armies. Because it was fine when it, to him, appeared, when it looked to him as though it was a preparation against the Polak. It looked like he was going to war against Poland. It could also refer to the king of Poland in the same way, like the Dane is the king of Denmark. So he thought it was against Poland, but better looked into, when he looked into it a little better, he truly found it was against your highness. In other words, he found out that it was actually against Claudius, against Denmark. So he continues... Whereat grieved, that so his sickness, age, and impotence was falsely borne in hand, sends out arrests on Fortinbras, which he, in brief, obeys, receives rebuke from Norway, and, in fine, makes vow before his uncle never more to give the assay of arms against your majesty. So when the king of Norway found out that young Fortinbras was going after Denmark, he was grieved at that, he was incredibly sad. At what? That so his sickness, that in this way, his sickness, age, and impotence, impotence here just means powerlessness was falsely born in hand. Born in hand means taken advantage of. So when he finds out that his nephew took advantage of him being sort of out of it, he sends out arrests on Fortinbras. He doesn't have him arrested. It just means that he sends orders to stop his actions, which he, young Fortinbras, obeys. In brief just means to speak briefly, because Voltemont could go on much longer detail about this. So he obeys, receives rebuke from Norway, accepts his uncle's criticism or disapproval, And in fine, finally, to sum up, makes vows before his uncle never more to give the assay of arms against your majesty. So he swears before in front of his uncle to give the assay of arms. Assay is an attempt. It can also sort of mean an attack, but he'll never try another military attempt against Denmark. So he's made that promise. And finally, he goes on. whereon old Norway, overcome with joy, gives him 3,000 crowns in annual fee and his commission to employ those soldiers, so levied as before, against the Polak. So Norway is incredibly happy to hear how obedient Fortinbras is. And so he gives him 3,000 crowns. A crown is a kind of coin, a gold coin, an annual fee. In other words, he gives him an annual payment of 3,000 crowns. And his commission, his authorization to employ those soldiers so levied as before, to take those soldiers that he had levied against Denmark and to send them out against the king of Poland. So he gives him a new mission, which he thought the old mission was. And what else does he give him? With an entreaty herein further shown that it might please you to give quiet pass through your dominions for this enterprise on such regards of safety and allowance as therein are set down. So the king of Norway has sent along an entreaty, a request, herein further shown. In other words, further described in this document, which I'm handing you right now. So there's an implied prop here. So it's a request that it might please you to give quiet pass through your dominions for this enterprise. So in other words, that it might be acceptable to you to give permission for them to pass unopposed through Denmark on their way to Poland. Quiet just means we won't fight you on the way. And dominions means kingdom or land. The enterprise is the war against Poland, but they have to go through Denmark to get there on such regards, on such terms, in other words, of safety and allowance. Allowance is just another word for permission as therein are set down or as as are set down in that paper I just gave you. And notice he says herein when it's in Vultimant's hand and therein when it's in Claudius's hand. And this is great news. Claudius says, it likes us well. In other words, it pleases us very well. Us is that royal we, so it pleases me, the king, very well. And at our more considered time, we'll read, answer, and think upon this business. At our more considered time just means when we have more time to consider this. We'll read, answer, and think upon this business. That seems a little out of order. It seems more like it should be read, think, and answer, but whatever. Meantime, we thank you for your well-took labor. So well-took can mean either well-done or sort of done for a good cause, this job that he's done. And finally, he sends them off. Go to your rest. At night, we'll feast together. Most welcome home. You know, they've been doing a lot of traveling. Go get some rest. And at night, we'll feast together. Or really, what we'll do probably is drink together. He says, most welcome home. He's really excited to have this out of the way. He did not need an international incident this early in his kingship. And it makes him look really great to take care of this big deal so easily. And look, why do we care about all this Norwegian politics stuff? It seems like we're checking in a lot with this. Well, it's going to become important later. So Shakespeare's just sort of sprinkling it into the play. We'll see it a few times before the end. And now it's Polonius' time to shine when the king is in a really good mood. If anything, it feels like he's engineered it so the king's going to be in a really good mood when he presents this difficult thing to him about Hamlet. So Polonius says, this business is well-ended. Okay, end of story. And now on to Hamlet. And really, what this gives Polinius a chance to do is make a speech, which he loves. He says, My liege and madam, to expostulate what majesty should be, what duty is, why day is day, night is night, and time is time, were nothing but to waste night, day, and time. And this seems like it could be the preamble to any long speech so he might have been saving it up for a while. He says, My liege, in other words, my lord, we've seen that term recently, but it's a very fancy term for your majesty, to expostulate. Expostulate is a very long word that means to speak very long, to go into real detail about. So to go on about these big subjects, about what majesty should be, what duty is, why day is day, why night is night, why time is time, all that would do is waste night, day, and time. So what he's saying is this is going to be real specific. It's not going to be big and philosophical, even though it might actually be big and philosophical, knowing Polonius. This is what you might call a rhetorical flourish. It's almost like he found this phrase in a book about speech making. So he goes on. Therefore, since brevity is the soul of wit and tediousness, the limbs and outward flourishes, I will be brief. Now, maybe you've heard the phrase brevity is the soul of wit outside of this play as a saying, but actually that saying is almost meaningless without the rest of the sentence. So brevity being brief and getting to the point, it's the soul of wit. Wit here means wisdom, not just being a smart aleck. And why soul? Because the soul is sort of the central foundational characteristic. You could also say heart if you wanted to. It would have that same meaning. So brevity is a soul of wit, but tediousness, in other words, going on and on, is the limbs and outward flourishes. So it's the parts as far away from the soul as possible. The limbs, the arms and legs, the outward flourishes. Flourishes are ornaments or decorations. So since brevity is the really important stuff, and going on and on is the outward unimportant stuff, I'm going to be brief. This sounds a lot like Hamlet's ideas about what's really important and what's not important. And it actually also sounds a lot like Polonius' advice to his son But Polonius, as always, is going to go on and not follow it. So he says, I will be brief. Your noble son is mad. Which is just a beautifully simple, I mean, it's almost all single-syllable words except for noble. And it's as simply as you can say, yes, your son is crazy. That would be the brevity version. But then the tediousness version, he can't help but say. He says, mad call I it for, to define true madness, what is it but to be nothing else but mad? Yeah, I call him insane because... If we're going to define true insanity, what is it other than being nothing except insane? And so he sort of worked himself into a rhetorical knot here. So he says, but let that go. In other words, forget about that. And Gertrude, we're starting to suspect, is maybe not a fan of Polonius. She jumps right on his line and says, more matter with less art. In other words, more substance, less sort of formal, elaborate, speechifying. And because they make up one verse line together, you could almost get the sense that he was about to go on. And she's cut him off and just says, get to the point, buddy. And Polonius is a little hurt by this. He says, Madam, I swear I use no art at all. So on the one hand, he could be saying, I'm not being flowery at all. He could also sort of be undercutting himself by saying, actually, I'm using no skill at all. But that's a little bit of a dig he doesn't get. And he goes right on back to his planned speech. He says that he is mad, tis true, tis true, tis pity, and pity tis, tis true. Again, these are very conscious rhetorical flourishes. He's picking up the last word of the previous phrase in the next one. So yes, he's mad. It's true. And then it's true that it's a pity and it's a pity that it's true. So he's just flipping it around and he sees what he's doing. He says a a foolish figure. In other words, that's a silly figure of speech that I just used. And remembering what the queen says, he says, but farewell it for I will use no art. Farewell it is a sort of creative way to say, I'll get rid of it because I'm not going to use any of that flowery speech. You could do a kind of cute gag where he would throw away like five pages of his speech that he had been planning to give. Anyway, mad, let us grant him then. Okay, he's mad. We've established that. And now remains that we find out the cause of this effect. So what's left is that we have to find out what caused this effect. In other words, the madness. But Polonius' dad brain just kicks in and he says, or rather say the cause of this defect, for this effect defective comes by cause. He just has a stupid pun for everything. This effect, actually what it really is, it's a defect. It's a defective effect. And he tries to wrap it up with another bit of fanciness. Thus it remains, and the remainder thus. This definitely sounds like a famous phrase that he's appropriating. Thus it remains. In other words, that's where things stand, and the remainder thus. And now here's what's next. This is a kind of phrase that you'll sometimes hear called a chiasmus, C-H-I-A-S-M-U-S. It just means that it starts in one place, goes to another, then copies that other, and goes back to the original place. It's that kind of A-B-B-A structure. Thus it remains, remainder thus. It's another cute phrase. And then he says, finally, perpend pen means listen or consider, but it's a very flowery way to say it. Finally, he's getting to his point. I have a daughter, have while she is mine, who in her duty and obedience, Mark, hath given me this. So he even has that goofy little parenthetical of, yeah, I have her, but only while she's mine, only until I marry her off. Who in her duty, out of duty and obedience to me, Mark, pay attention to me, this is to the king and queen, listen, has given me this. And this is a letter from Hamlet. Now gather and surmise. It's another phrase. Gather means gather up all the information I'm going to present to you. And surmise means make your own conclusions from that. But it definitely seems like another set phrase, a formal phrase. So he's going to read out the letter that Hamlet sent to Ophelia. And some directors will occasionally put Ophelia into this scene as a sort of silent observer who gets dragged along, you know, to really make things hard on her. Obviously, she's not actually written into it, but there's no reason she can't just be there. So he reads, To the celestial and my soul's idol the most beautified Ophelia. Celestial means like heavenly one. And my soul's idol. Idol is sort of like a god, but it can also mean a false god in the sense that people who weren't Christians were believed to worship the sun. So she's celestial and she's the idol of his soul, like the sun that he worships. The most beautified Ophelia. He doesn't say beautiful Ophelia, he says beautified. And Polonius immediately catches that. That's an ill phrase, a vile phrase. Beautified is a vile phrase. Ill means bad or kind of rotten, as vile does. And phrase is phrasing, like word choice. Like, why would you say beautified instead of beautiful? That implies really negative stuff about her. But he goes back to the letter. He says, but you shall hear. Thus, in her excellent white bosom, these, etc. Now, white bosom could mean pure heart, but it could also mean, you know, white bosom. The etc. almost feels like it's a ellipsis, like a dot, dot, dot because he starts to read the these. It can mean these letters or these words or these something else. But it's possible that Polonius is reading this and it gets a little filthy or uncomfortable and he just adds that, etc. And Gertrude is pretty uncomfortable about this whole situation. She says, came this from Hamlet to her? Like, Did he really send this to her? And Polonius says, good madam, stay a while, I will be faithful. She's interrupted his flow again. This is a very carefully planned out speech on his part. And he doesn't want anyone getting in the way of that, even the queen. So stay means just wait a while, just wait a second. I will be faithful. In other words, I'm going to deliver what I promised to you. In other words, the reason for Hamlet's madness. And then he skips down to a part of the letter that's a little more appropriate. Doubt thou the stars are fire, doubt that the sun doth move, doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. So this is a very conscious poem that he's writing to Ophelia. And remember from before, move and love used to rhyme. So it's actually a slightly better poem than it seems to be. And that repetition of doubt, that kind of refrain is a staple of romantic poetry, especially bad romantic poetry. So you can doubt that the stars are really made of fire. You can doubt that the sun moves. And remember, at this time, it was believed that the sun did move, that we were stationary. Though that was starting to change a little bit at this time. So there may be a little unconscious undercutting under there. Doubt truth. Suspect that truth is a liar, but never doubt that I love. So that's the end of the poem. And he goes on to the rest of the letter. Oh, dear Ophelia, I am ill at these numbers. In other words, I'm bad at this poetry. And he says, I have not art to reckon my groans. Art here is poetic ability. I don't have the artistic ability to reckon, to count. Reckon can also mean express in poetry, my groans. And groans is usually love groans, but there's also a hint of the groans of sex. So there's a little weirdness in this letter. And he finishes, but that I love thee best, oh, most best, believe it, adieu. And adieu, like we remember from the ghost, is a sort of poetical Farewell. And finally, he signs it. Thine evermore, most dear lady, whilst this machine is to him, Hamlet. Thine evermore means yours forever. Whilst this machine is to him, that could mean as long as this body belongs to him. In other words, as long as I'm alive. But machine is a very strange way to say body. So this looks like it was sent before Polonius banned her from getting his letters. So this may be an early letter before the madness plot goes into effect. So Polonius is really laying out the whole story. He says, this in obedience hath my daughter shown me. So my daughter showed this to me because she was obedient to me and I told her to. He goes on, and more above hath his solicitings as they fell out by time, by means and place, all given to mine ear. More above. And on top of that, she has given to his ear. She's told him Hamlet's solicitings. So his solicitings are his attempts to win her love as they fell out by time, by means and place. In other words, as they happened, according to what time? what means, in other words, what medium they were delivered by and what place. So she's really detailed it to him. And Claudia says, but how has she received his love? In other words, how has she responded to the love he offered her and all these different solicitings? And instead of answering that question, Polonius says, what do you think of me? Claudius is a little taken aback. He says, as of a man, faithful and honorable. In other words, I think you're faithful and honorable. He's fishing for compliments a little bit. Polonius says, I would fain prove so. Fain means gladly or happily. I would really like to prove faithful and honorable. And then he goes right on. But what might you think when I had seen this hot love on the wing? As I perceived it, I must tell you that before my daughter told me. What might you, or my dear majesty, your queen here, think if I had played the desk or table book or given my heart a winking, mute and dumb, or looked upon this love with idle sight? What might you think? So you think I'm faithful and honorable, but what would you think of me if when I had seen this hot love on the wing? And hot means sort of overheated or ardent or burning love, the kind of love that young people fall in. On the wing means flying along. It's like going all the way forward as I perceived it. In other words, since I sensed it, I have to tell you, before my daughter even told me about it. It's another way to make him look good. So what would you or my dear majesty or queen here think if I had played the desk or table book, which is a charmingly ridiculous image, if I had acted like a desk or a table book? Desk here isn't really the piece of furniture we know of. It's like a writing stand you put on a table. And the table book is a book you put on a table. So in other words, if I had just acted like an inanimate object, just sitting there, not reacting, or given my heart a winking, winking here isn't like winking one eye. It means closing both eyes. So if I had let my heart close its eyes to what was going on, mute and dumb means not saying anything about it. Or what if I had looked upon this love with idle sight? Idle sight is a really cool phrase. It just means that you're seeing, but you're not doing anything about it. So what would you have thought of me if I did that, if I didn't do anything about it? No, I went round to work and my young mistress, thus I did bespeak. Lord Hamlet is a prince out of thy star. This must not be. So I went round to work. I went right away. I went directly to work and my young mistress and to Ophelia, thus I did bespeak. I spoke to her this way. Lord Hamlet is a prince out of thy star. Star is destiny in that sense that they thought that your astrology controlled your destiny. What it really means here is social standing. So she wasn't destined to be with him because they came from different social classes. This must not be, yeah, you can't be with him. And then I prescripts gave her that she should lock herself from his resort, admit no messengers, receive no tokens. Prescripts are like instructions or orders. So I gave those to her. What were they? That she should lock herself from his resort. A resort here doesn't mean like a beachfront property. It means that she should lock herself away from his access. So a place where he can't reach her. Admit no messengers means not let in any messengers from him. Receive no tokens. Don't get any sort of keepsakes or mementos or little gifts from him. Which done, she took the fruits of my advice, and he repulsed, a short tale to make, fell into a sadness, then into a fast, thence to a watch, thence into a weakness, thence to a lightness, and by this declension into the madness wherein now he raves and all we mourn for. So once I had told her that, she took the fruits of my advice. In other words, she took the benefits of my advice. And he repulsed. It didn't mean he was repulsed by her. It means that he was refused or sent back by her. A short tale to make. This is another little phrase like, to make a long story short, even though this is going to be like a five-line sentence he's about to say. And then Polonius sets up this chain of events. So he fell first into a sadness, then into a fast, in other words, not eating. Thence, in other words, from there to a watch. A watch means staying up without sleeping thence into a weakness, from there into a weakness, from there to a lightness, which is like a dizziness or lightheadedness. And by this declension, we usually hear that referring to grammar, but declension here means declining or deterioration or breaking down. So by that breaking down, he fell into the madness wherein now he raves. So in which now he acts insane. And raving usually refers to insane talk. So the kind of wild nonsense speech that crazy people use. So he fell into the insanity that he raves in and that all of us mourn about. And that speech is so rhetorical that you just get the sense he must have practiced that over and over again as sort of his big finish. But Claudius doesn't immediately applaud him. He says to Gertrude, do you think tis this? Like, do you think this is the explanation? And Gertrude says, it may be very like. And like here means likely. And Polonius is maybe a little hurt that they haven't immediately taken his suggestion as right. And he says, "Had there been such a time, I would fain know that, that I have positively said tis so when it proved otherwise. Like, has there ever been a time I would fain know that I would gladly or happily know that, that I have positively said Tis so that I've definitively for sure said this is so when it proved to be otherwise, you know, when it turned out to be something different than what I said. And Claudius says this cute little, not that I know, but Polonius isn't done yet. He says, take this from this, if this be otherwise. And this is pretty unclear, but a tradition has grown up around this, that what he's saying is. Take this head from these shoulders, if this, if the cause of Hamlet's insanity be otherwise. In other words, if it's different from what I said it was. But you get that cool repetition of this. And then he gets to brag on himself a little bit. He says, If circumstances lead me, I will find where truth is hid, though it were hid indeed within the center. And circumstances here is probably something like evidence. So if the evidence leads me there, I'm going to find out where the truth is hidden, even if it were hidden at the very center of all the evidence, which, by the way, is where the truth is usually hidden. So. So Claudius has heard him brag enough. He says, how may we try it further? And try here means test it out. So how can we test your theory? And this is what Polonius has been waiting for because he has a plan, conveniently enough, already put together. He says, you know, sometimes he walks for hours together here in the lobby. In some texts, you'll see it four hours together. Together means like at a time. And the lobby sort of like the lobby of a modern hotel. is just the main courtyard. And Gertrude goes with him. She says, so he does indeed. And Polonius says, at such a time, I'll loose my daughter to him. So one of those times when he's walking, I'll release my daughter to him. I'll let loose my daughter on him. And then we see one of Polonius's famed political tricks. He says, be you and I behind an arras, then. An arras is like a big wall hanging or tapestry. So Claudius and he should be hiding behind that wall hanging when they talk. Mark the encounter. So pay close attention to their discussion. If you love her not and be not from his reason fallen thereon, let me be no assistant for a state, but keep a farm in Carter's. So if it turns out that he isn't in love with her and he isn't fallen from his reason, in other words, fallen into madness thereon because of this love, if that's all not true, well then let me be no assistant for a state. You know, I shouldn't be a government counselor. What I should do is oversee a farm and carters who are like cart drivers. So instead of government, I'll go back into farming. That's how sure he is of his opinion. He's going to bet his job on it. And Claudius agrees. He says, we'll try it. In other words, we'll use this to test him. And finally, 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 Hamlet comes back. And this is, remember, the first time we've seen Hamlet since the ghost scene. We've heard some things about Hamlet. We've heard Ophelia's description of his insane appearance and behavior towards her. But it's been a while since we've actually seen him on stage. So probably something has to be different about his appearance now. He may be specifically acting out these madness behaviors, which was the same thing we had in that Ophelia picture that she gave us. There was also a really clear set of behaviors that audiences at this time knew to associate with madness, because obviously crazy people were a big part of plays at this time, both the revenge tragedies and other plays, tragedies of all kinds. This included sort of specific gestures, specific ways to dress, specific behaviors. Singing is a really big one, saying nonsense phrases. And you're going to see all of that in Hamlet's Madness. And Gertrude says, but look where sadly the poor wretch comes reading. So we get a few descriptions of him here. One, we know that he's reading a book. When we know that he's a wretch, so that means like a wretched or sort of downcast person, we see sadly, the word sadly. So either that's her or it's a description of him reading sadly. And it also seems like they see him, but he does not see them. So here's Polonius' chance, And he says to them, away, I do beseech you both away. So I beg you both go, go away right now. I'll board him presently. I'll encounter him. I'll talk to him presently means at once right now. And he has to say to them again, oh, give me leave give me permission, but also leave, get out of here so I can do this. So they haven't had time yet to set up this encounter between Hamlet and Ophelia and for the king and Polonius to be behind the screen. But Polonius is just going to test out Hamlet here. And so Polonius approaches him. He says, how does my good Lord Hamlet, in that way you talk to kids or crazy people. And Hamlet says, well, God a mercy. God a mercy is short for may God have mercy on you or me. It's a sort of formulaic greeting. And one thing you may notice just by looking at the book is that we're not in poetry anymore. This is one of the first big prose sections in Hamlet. And the cool thing is when you're watching the play and listening to it, you hear the difference. You hear all of a sudden, we're in a much less formal, more flexible way of speaking. It's almost like Hamlet's way of dragging people out of a more formal, planned way of speaking is to launch into prose. Because Polonius is suddenly right there with him. He says, do you know me, my lord? As in, poor little guy, do you know who I am? And Hamlet says, excellent, well. So he seems like the same old guy. Excellent just means extremely well. But then his next response, you are a fishmonger. Fishmonger could be a nonsense word, but it could also be a little bit of a dig on him. So a fishmonger obviously is someone who sells fish, but it can also mean something like a pimp. In other words, someone who sells out his own daughter. So as with a lot of stuff in this madness, it lets him both have the protection of insanity and say exactly what he wants to say. Because there weren't that many people who could talk to important people that directly and honestly. It's just crazy people and jesters. But Polonius, of course, doesn't get it. He says, not I, my lord. I'm not a fishmonger. And Hamlet shoots back, then I would you were so honest a man. You know, I wish you were as honest as a fishmonger is. Polonius says, honest, my lord? And Hamlet comes back, Aye, sir, to be honest as this world goes is to be one man picked out of 10,000, which is a nice little truth bomb that he has to drop in there. You know, the way this world is going, only one man out of 10,000 is honest. You know, it's that world of liars that Hamlet finds himself in. But Polonius, of course, is still treating him like a baby. That's very true, my lord. And then Hamlet goes on. For if the sun breed maggots in a dead dog, being a god kissing carrion, have you a daughter? So it seems like he's just gone into crazy person nonsense talk. But look what he's actually saying. He says, if the sun, if even the sun, the most heavenly body in the sky, can breed maggots, can create maggots, because if you didn't know better, you'd think that when there's a dead body, the maggots are born out of that lying in the sun, instead of the fact that it's flies lying their eggs in it, being a god kissing carrion. So it seems like the maggots come from a kiss between a god and carrion, dead flesh. So if a beautiful holy thing like the sun and a disgusting thing like a dead dog can give birth to maggots, and a god can kiss carrion, and then it seems like he switches topics when he says, have you a daughter? But actually, it's very sneakily staying on the same topic. Because Polonius says, I have my lord. He's clearly not getting this. And so Hamlet says to really dig in the knife, let her not walk in the sun. So it seems like he's just turned it and started to compare her to the dead dog. So let her not walk in the sun could mean don't let her walk outside. But the sun, you know, the guy could also in some ways be him. So don't let her see me. Conception is a blessing, but not as your daughter may conceive. Conception obviously is pregnancy in the same way that the the sun was breeding maggots. She's conceiving, but it can also mean understanding. Like I conceive what you're talking about. So conception is a blessing, but not as your daughter may conceive, like not if she understands. Or if she conceives children in the world, especially his children, it's not going to be good. They're going to be corrupt and disgusting like the maggots. And this all goes totally over Polonius's head. Hamlet tells him, friend, look to it. In other words, be sure not to let her walk in the sun. And Polonius hears all the words, but he doesn't get what he's talking about. He says to himself, or in some ways to the audience in this aside, he says, how say you by that? Which means, what do you mean by that? He just goes back to the words he understands. He says, still harping on my daughter. And harping is, you know, focusing repeatedly on one thing over and over again. He's heard the word daughter a lot. That's all he gets. And Polonius continues, "Yet he knew me not at first, he said I was a fishmonger. He is far gone, far gone. So he hears these convoluted words and all he can conclude is that Hamlet is totally insane. He's like far gone insane. And so he tries to make sense of this. He says, and truly in my youth, I suffered much extremity for love very near this. Yeah, when I was young, I went through a lot of extremity, extreme emotion for love, very near, very much like this. So he's trying to use Hamlet's words to back up his own theory that Ophelia's rejection drove Hamlet insane. He's like, okay, I heard some words that sound like what I'm talking about. Good. I'll I'll go with this. So he says, I'll speak to him again. And he goes back to Hamlet. What do you read, my lord? Which leads us to believe that while Polonius has been talking to the audience, Hamlet's gone back to his book. So Polonius asks what he reads and Hamlet responds, words, 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 words. And Polonius says, what is the matter, my lord? Now, what is the matter has a very different meaning today than it used to have. What is the matter here means what is the subject of the book. But matter can also mean the subject for a debate or a thing you're fighting about. So Hamlet's response is to pun on that and say, between who? Like, who's disagreeing? Who's fighting? And Polonius says, I mean the matter that you read, my lord. So Hamlet is undercutting him every chance he gets. And madness is a great excuse for it. So finally, Polonius clarifies. And Hamlet says, slander, sir. it's all lies for the satirical rogue says here that old men have gray beards that their faces are wrinkled their eyes purging thick amber and plum tree gum and that they have a plentiful lack of wit together with most weak hams now a rogue is a dishonest person and satirical means mocking you know like our modern use of satire so he's talking about the author it's this is total slander because the author says here that apparently old men have gray beards that their faces are wrinkled Their eyes purging thick amber and plum tree gum. Purging means like secreting or discharging. Amber and plum tree gum are sort of kinds of tree sap. So he's comparing the goop that comes out of old people's eyes to the sap that comes out of trees. And that they have a plentiful lack of wit. Plentiful lack is kind of a cool oxymoron. How can you have a lack and a plenty of it? And wit here means wisdom. Together with, along with, most weak hams. Hams are thighs. You know, in that sense of hamstrings. So basically, Hamlet is looking right at this old guy in Polonius and using the book and his madness as an excuse to go right at him. And he continues, "...all which, sir, though I most powerfully and potently believe, yet I hold it not honesty to have it thus set down." And he says, "...yeah, no, I mean, I totally believe that." So he's called it slander, but then he said, "...I totally believe this stuff." And powerfully and potently are both ways of saying strongly, but you get those strong P sounds which really knock it home. "...yet I hold it not honesty." But I don't consider it honorable behavior, in other words, to say mean things about old guys, to have it thus set down, to have it written down in a book. So it's not the facts that he's annoyed at, it's the fact that it's written down. And why? For you yourself, sir, should be as old as I am if, like a crab, you could go backwards. Because you yourself would be exactly the same age I am. And then he adds that little caveat, if, like a crab, you could walk backwards. In other words, if you could walk backwards in time in the same way that a crab can sort of scuttle backwards, you'd be exactly the same age I am. And Polonius has another aside to the audience here. Though this be madness, yet yeah, there is method in it. And this, again, is a very famous line, but it does actually have a meaning. Method here means logic, or sort of like a clear chain of logical ideas. So yeah, this is insanity, but it has logic in it, because he recognizes finally that Hamlet is insulting him. And he kind of wants this to be over. He says, will you walk out of the air, my lord? In other words, will you walk out of the open air? Will you go inside? And Hamlet snaps back at him, into my grave? In other words, to a place without air, underground. Underground. And Polonius can only say, indeed, that is out of the air. And he has another aside. He says how pregnant sometimes his replies are. Pregnant, obviously, here isn't our usual meaning. It means meaningful. A happiness that often madness hits on, which reason and sanity could not so prosperously be delivered of. And Remember, happy means fortunate. So happiness here means something like kind of an accidental accuracy that often madness hits on. That madness sometimes kind of shooting all its arrows all over the place will occasionally accidentally be right. And reason and sanity could not so prosperously be delivered of. Prosperously means effectively or accurately, and be delivered of means produce. But if you go back to the beginning of that line, his answers are pregnant, and they're delivered of real meaning. So it's that sense of being pregnant and then delivering the baby of meaning. And Polonius has a plan. I will leave him and suddenly contrive the means of meeting between him and my daughter. So he's going to go and he's going to suddenly, he's going to immediately or at once contrive, which means to plan or arrange the means of meeting, the way for him to meet her. So he's going to go off and figure out how to launch his original plan. And then he turns back to Hamlet and says, My honorable Lord, I will most humbly take my leave of you. And you see how condescending and formal that sounds. Most humbly. And take my leave of you means I'll go. But Hamlet takes that phrase, take my leave, and turns it on him. You cannot, sir, take from me anything that I will more willingly part with all. So there's nothing you could take from me that I would be more happy to part with than you except my life except my life except my life it almost seems like he chases him out of the room so he hints at that suicidal feeling just to give polonius something to take to the king and to keep that madness and melancholy thing intact finally polonius just says fare you well my lord and hamlet has a little aside where he says these tedious old fools so we see the real hamlet underneath these mad words both he and polonius are pretty sick of each other by now and polonius on his way out meets Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are coming to find Hamlet. He says, you go to seek the Lord Hamlet? There he is. Like, you want your shot at him? Be my guest, guys. And as Polonius is leaving, Rosencrantz says to him, God save you, sir. Which is another nice bit of sucking up that he gets into a lord before he leaves. So finally, they're left alone with Hamlet. And they call out to him. Guildenstern says, my honored lord. And Rosencrantz has to top him. He says, my most dear lord. And Hamlet must think his eyes are fooling him. He says, my excellent good friends. Because they've given him a very formal greeting, honored and dear lord. And he shoots back at them, no, not not all this lord stuff, my excellent good friends. How dost thou, Guildenstern? Ah, Rosencrantz, good lads, how do you both? You know, how are you both doing? I'm sure it's been years and years since he's seen them. And as soon as they reply, you're going to see the relationship that these people used to have. It's a relationship built almost entirely on what they used to call wit, which is to say punning and taking off on each other's words. And this was one way for really clever boys, especially, to talk to each other. And the usual way it works is that the last part of someone's statement gets turned around in the first part of your statement. So watch how they talk to each other. So he asks them how they're doing. And Rosencrantz says, as the indifferent children of the earth. Indifferent here means they're kind of average. They're neither good or bad. They're, they're kind of balanced. And Guildenstern jumps on that and says, happy in that we are not over happy. Remember, happy means lucky or fortunate. You know What we're lucky about is that we're not too lucky. On fortune's cap, we are not the very button. So if you think of like the button on the top of a baseball cap, it's the highest point. So we aren't at the highest point of fortune. You know, fortune was often pictured with a wheel. And the idea was that some people were up and then some people were down. And then as the wheel turned, they would switch places. So there was a kind of cyclical nature to fortune. And what he's saying is that we're not at the highest part of fortune right now. So Hamlet comes back and he says, oh, if you're not at the highest point, nor the soles of her shoe. So you aren't at the lowest point either. And Rosencrantz says, neither, my lord. So this is where Hamlet's gonna get into the jokes. Then you live about her waist, or in the middle of her favors. So if you're not the highest or the lowest point, you must live right about her waist. The middle of her favors, favors here just means her gifts or preferences. And Guildenstern picks up on that middle thing and says, faith, her privates we. So faith means I swear by my faith. And privates, you know, it could mean kind of like her private officers, like we sort of do whatever she wants, or it could also mean that other thing around her waist, her private parts. And Hamlet loves that. He says, in the secret parts of fortune. So in fortune's private parts. And then he jumps on that and says, oh, most true. She is a strumpet. It's like, yeah, fortune does have private parts. A strumpet is like a harlot or a slut. And another image of fortune, in addition to that wheel, was that she was a woman who went around and gave herself at random to different men at different times. Because, you know, sometimes some people were up and sometimes some people were down. So sometimes she loved them and sometimes she loved others. And then she would suddenly switch to another one. So we've just seen a real insight into how they relate to each other, which is they're always joking, they're always making plays on words, sometimes they're a little dirty. So you could see them really laughing to each other over this way of talking. It's almost like those friends you have that you've known since you were really young, and even if you don't see them for years and years, you fall right back into that way of speaking. So they're enjoying themselves, and so Hamlet finally says, what news? So if they're here, there must be some news. And Rosencrantz says, none, my lord, but that the world's grown honest. And Hamlet says, well, then is doomsday near? Doomsday is like the final judgment day. So why would the world grow honest? Either because it's people making up for lost time by all repenting and being honest in the hope of getting into heaven at the last minute, or doomsday is just another way of saying never, like the world will never actually grow honest. But it's clear to him that that's an evasion. He says, but your news is not true. Let me question more in particular. Let me ask you a more specific question. What have you, my good friends, deserved at the hands of fortune that she sends you to prison hither? So, at the hands of means from. So, like, what have you done that fortune is sending you to prison hither, to here? And Guildenstern doesn't get it. He says, prison, my lord? And Hamlet says, oh, yeah, Denmark's a prison. And Rosencrantz says, well, if Denmark's a prison, then is the world one? And Hamlet replies, a goodly one in which there are many confines, wards, and dungeons, Denmark being one of the worst. And so Hamlet says, if the world is a prison, well, then it's a, a goodly one, a very attractive or pretty prison in which there are many confines. Confines are cells, places where people are confined. Wards are like divisions or different halls within a prison and dungeons. And Denmark is one of the worst of the dungeons. And Rosencrantz is trying to get him to cheer up. He says, we think not so, my lord. You know, we like Denmark. And Hamlet says, why then, tis none to you. Well, it isn't a prison to you then. For there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. You know, the only thing that makes something good or bad is the way you think about it. To me, it is a prison. And Rosencrantz is still trying to butter him up. He says... Why, then your ambition makes it one. Tis too narrow for your mind. So ambition is still the sense in which we use it, but ambition literally comes from the Latin word to sort of walk around. So kind of his desire to break out of it is what makes it a prison. It's just too small for his mind. Hamlet says, no, too small? Oh God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. So he denies that it's too small for his ambition. No, he could be bounded. He could be contained in that sense of a bound as a border just inside a tiny little nutshell and count myself, consider myself a king of infinite space, were it not, if it wasn't for the fact that I have bad dreams. And Guildenstern is trying to get him out of this moping and he launches back into that wit. He takes that word dreams and he says, which dreams indeed are ambition, for the very substance of the ambitious is merely the shadow of a dream. See, even we talk about like, I have dreams that I want to fulfill. So yeah, dreams are ambition. The very substance of the ambitious, in other words, The thing that an ambitious person chases is just the shadow of a dream. You have that dream, and the thing you're chasing is just the shadow of it. And Hamlet grabs those words, the shadow of a dream, and he says, well, a dream itself is but a shadow. How is a dream a shadow? Well, it's like a ghostly reflection of the mind, where the mind spits out images. And Rosencrantz takes that and jumps with it too. He says, truly, and I hold ambition of so airy and light a quality that it is but a shadow's shadow. I hold, I consider ambition of so airy and light a quality, so insubstantial, not real, that it's but a shadow's shadow. So it's the shadow of a dream, which is itself a shadow. And Hamlet goes even farther. He says, then are our beggars bodies and our monarchs and outstretched heroes, the beggars shadows. So our beggars, our poor people, our bodies. In other words, they're solid and real because they don't really have ambition to do anything great. And our monarchs and outstretched heroes, outstretched here in the sense of like far seeking or ambitious, the people who want to go out and do things, but also outstretched like a shadow on the ground behind a person on a sunny day. So only poor people are real and the rest of us greater ambitious people are just shadows. And that's like six or seven of these witty back and forths. And Hamlet is finally burnt out. He says, shall we to the court, you know, shall we go to the court for by my faith, I cannot reason. Fay is another way of saying faith by my faith, I swear. I cannot reason, doesn't mean I can't think, but I can't do this battle of wits anymore. He also might be implying that at the court, you don't really need to be that witty, so that'll give him a nice rest. And he proposes to leave, and Rosencrantz jumps right up and he says, we'll wait upon you, because it's their job to go along with him, remember, to watch him. And wait upon just means to accompany, or can even mean to serve like a servant. And Hamlet says, no such matter, like you're not going to wait upon me. I will not sort you with the rest of my servants. Sort means classify you along with the rest of my servants. You're my friends, you're not my servants. For to speak like an honest man, I am most dreadfully attended. Like if I'm going to be honest with you, I have really bad servants. And then he kind of realizes that they tricked him into dropping his question. And he says, but in the beaten way of friendship, what make you at Elsinore? A beaten way is literally a well-traveled path. So their friendship is like a road that's been walked across many times just because of all the years they've known each other. So since we've known each other so long, just tell me, what make you what are you doing here at Elsinore and Rosencrantz just says to visit you my lord no other occasion But Hamlet won't let it drop he says beggar that I am I am even poor in thanks but I thank you and sure dear friends my thanks are too dear a halfpenny. and this is Hamlet calling himself poor again which is always a funny joke because he's incredibly rich but he's a beggar in the sense that he doesn't have many qualities he's trying to pretend to be humble here so I'm poor but I'm even poor in thanks I can't even thank you right but I do thank you and sure and surely dear friends. My thanks are too dear a hapenny In other words, my thanks are cheap. They're too dear a hapenny means they're too expensive even when they're priced at half a penny. So he thanks them, but he still wants to know, were you not sent for? Is it your own inclining? In other words, is it your own inclination or wish that brought you here? Is it a free visitation? And free here means freely given or a willing visitation. And he keeps asking them and they just say nothing. So question, question, question. And finally he says, come deal justly with me. Behave honestly with me, behave fairly with me, and nothing. And finally he says, come, come, and nothing. Nay, speak. And Guildenstern can only say, what should we say, my lord? Which is a total cop-out of an answer. And Hamlet's starting to really suspect them now. Because they just won't say honestly why they're there. Because he knows there's another reason. And Hamlet says, what should you say? Why, anything but to the purpose. Say anything, as long as it's to the point. Instead of this what-should-we-say stuff. And finally he accuses them you were sent for and there's a kind of confession in your looks which your modesties have not craft enough to color this is a real insult so you have a confession in your looks which your modesties in other words your feelings of shame or what is proper don't have craft don't have skill enough to color so they may be blushing and they can't disguise that from him he says i know the good king and queen have sent for you and rosencrantz is still not admitting it he says to what end my lord you know for what reason why would they possibly send for us and was pretty frustrated by now. He says, well, Dad, you must teach me. You have to tell me why they sent for you. And finally, he's going to give them one last chance. But let me conjure you by the rights of our fellowship, by the constancy of our youth, by the obligation of our ever-preserved love, and by what more dear a better proposer could charge you withal, be even and direct with me whether you were sent for or no. So let me conjure you. Let me ask as like honestly and intently as I can. By the rights, in other words, in the name of our fellowship, our friendship, by the constancy of our youth, by the fact that we are almost exactly the same age, by the obligation of our ever-preserved love, ever-preserved means preserved eternally, and finally, by what more dear, by what more valuable thing, a better proposer, in other words, a proposer of oaths, could charge you with all, could ask you with, be even, be honest, and direct with me, whether you were sent for or no, you know, whether they called you here or not. So this is last chance. And what's Rosencrantz's response? He turns to Guildenstern and says, what say you? In other words, what do you say? What do you think we should do? And as soon as Hamlet hears that, it's over. He says, nay then, I have an eye of you. Which is a way to say, I have my eye on you. I'm watching you from now on. And while they're talking to each other, he says, if you love me, hold not off. If you really love me, don't hold back. Tell me why you're here. And finally, Guildenstern blurts it out. He says, my lord, we were sent for. And then Hamlet unloads on them. He says, I will tell you why. I'm going to tell you why you got sent for So shall my anticipation prevent your discovery and your secrecy to the king and queen molt no feather? And he's going to do this to benefit them. My anticipation, my knowing why, is going to prevent your discovery. It's going to stop you from confessing to me. And that way, your secrecy to the king and queen, the fact that you promised them you wouldn't tell me why you were here, will molt no feather. In other words, lose none of its worth. The literal images of a bird losing beautiful feathers, so birds without feathers aren't worth as much anymore. So he's going to preserve their payout from the king and queen by telling them instead of them having to tell him. So they have sort of plausible deniability. And he's going to tell them why. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, foregone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. So I have of late, I have recently, but wherefore I know not, but I don't know why lost all my mirth, lost all my happiness. Mirth is usually actually laughter. Foregone all custom of exercises, I've stopped all my usual activities. And indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition. In other words, my mood is so sort of heavy and depressed that this goodly frame, this beautiful structure, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. It looks to me like a sterile, like a barren promontory. And a promontory is like a tiny little spit of land that goes out into the water. It's kind of lonely rock. And what else? This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof, fretted with golden fire. Why, it appeareth no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. And this most excellent canopy, is like a beautiful canopy over a bed. And what is he describing the air? Look you, this brave o'erhanging firmament. Brave means sort of like magnificent or fine. A firmament is just a, a fancier way of describing the sky he goes on to describe it another way this majestical roof fretted with golden fire fretted means like inlaid or decorated and the fire in this case is all the heavenly bodies the sun and the star and the planets and the moon so he's built it up into this beautiful thing and what does it look like it appeareth no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors pestilent means harmful or diseased and congregation of vapors is like a collection of gases so this beautiful sky just looks like a bunch of disgusting gases to me That's how bad I feel. And even more than that, what a piece of work is a man! A piece of work is literally like a creation, like something that God created. And then he goes on to describe man even further. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. So, how noble is man? in its ability to reason, how infinite in faculties, faculties are like abilities, it can do anything. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In its appearance and its ability to move, express means well-made. In action, how like an angel. In what it does, it behaves like an angel. In apprehension, in its ability to understand, how like a god. Because remember, eating the tree of knowledge gives you the ability to understand things, just like the gods do. So humans are the beauty of the world, the most beautiful thing in the world, the paragon of animals. A paragon is like the most excellent thing there is. So we're the most excellent of animals. So just like he described the sky in these huge terms, he does the same with human beings. And then he turns it. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Quintessence is like the most pure form, the most concentrated form. It's actually a term from alchemy. So to Hamlet, it isn't all these wonderful things. It looks to him like just a really nice piece of dust. And this is a pretty famous speech, and one thing to remember is that it comes right after Hamlet has figured out that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are kind of there to screw him over. So he may actually be talking about his real thoughts about life, and he may be messing with them. He may be doing this very poetic, over-the-top speech in order to get them to see how depressed he is, but without giving them the reason for it. So just keep that in mind. So he finishes that section with, man delights, not me. And then he sees them smiling. He says, no, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. So he catches them giggling a little bit. And it's almost like they're making a childish joke about it. Like, I hear you don't like man, but what about woman, huh? And huh? Rosencrantz protests, he says, my lord, there was no such stuff in my thoughts. Like, I wasn't thinking about sex jokes at all. Because remember, what is their mission? Their mission is to get Hamlet to do things that he enjoys in the hopes that he'll reveal his troubles to them. And Hamlet strikes back. He says, why did you laugh then when I said man delights not me? He said, what was the joke about man doesn't delight me, if not the woman joke? And Rosencrantz turns it and he says, to think, my lord, if you delight not in man, what Lenten entertainment the players shall receive from you. He says, I laughed because if you're not excited about human beings, you're going to really hate the actors. Lenten entertainment means a bland reception. Lent is the time for when you're, you know, being serious and fasting and thinking about your sins. So if you don't like people, you're going to receive these actors really badly. Rosencrantz says, we coded them on the way, and hither are they coming to offer you service. Coded means we went around them, we passed them on the way, and hither are they coming, they're coming here to offer you their service. And immediately Hamlet's excited. He loves these actors. He says, he that plays the king shall be welcome. His majesty shall have tribute of me. So the actor that usually plays the king, you know, his majesty in quotes, shall have tribute of me. Tribute is money owed by one country to another in the way that Norway owes to Denmark. So Hamlet says, I'm going to pay him. And he goes on, the adventurous knight shall use his foil and target. So the guy who plays the knight will use his foil. The foil is a flexible fencing sword, and a target is a sort of small round shield that fencers use. So he's going to get a chance to play the knight. The lover shall not sigh gratis. You know, the actor who plays the lover won't have to sigh like lovers do in plays for free. The humorous man shall end his part in peace. A humorous man isn't a funny person. It's someone who strongly expresses one of those four humors we were talking about. And those four humors are usually something like courageous and angry and melancholy and unemotional. So it's essentially a character actor, someone who can take one of those four humors and really push them. So he'll end his part in peace. He'll end his speech in silence, which means he'll get to the end of his speech. He goes on. The clown shall make those laugh whose lungs are tickle of the seer. Tickle means easily set off. And the seer is the catch that keeps a gun cocked. So if your lungs are tickle of the seer, that means you have like a hair trigger on your laughter. It's kind of a cool image, it could go off at any time. So the clown's gonna make people laugh who are just ready to laugh. And the lady, she'll say her mind freely or the blank verse, she'll halt for it. You know, and the actor who plays the lady will say all her words or else the blank verse, you know, the unrhymed verse, she'll halt for it. Halt means to limp. And so what happens if you leave out words from blank verse is that it doesn't sound right. So she'll be able to say all the words. And actually this list gives you a really good idea of what companies looked like. You had actors who played specialties. They didn't play all the different parts. You had one guy who played the king, one guy who played the knight, one guy who played the lover, you had the clown, you had the lady. And so the actors we're about to meet are this list of actors. And most plays have some sort of stock character for them to play. But Hamlet doesn't know exactly which actors they are. He says, what players are they? And this is his lucky day, Rosencrantz says, even those you were wont to take delight in, the tragedians of the city, won't means used to or accustomed to. So it's exactly those ones you used to take such delight in, the tragedians of the city. It's the name of the company. And it seems to imply that they had a playhouse in the city itself. And Hamlet's confused by that. He says, how chances is it they travel? Like, how does it happen that they're on the road? They're the tragedians of the city. He says, their residence, both in reputation and profit, was better both ways. Their residence, the fact that they stayed in the city, was better for both their reputation and their profit. So you can't make money or a name just traveling around. But if you have your own place in the city, then you're a big deal. And Rosencrantz explains why they're traveling. He says, I think their inhibition comes by means of the late innovation. Inhibition means like their hindering or their inability to work in the city. And it comes by means of the late innovation. And late means recent. And innovation, we still have that word today. It's essentially the hot new thing. And what's that hot new thing that's making them travel? He's going to explain it in a second. But first Hamlet says, do they hold the same estimation they did when I was in the city? Are they so followed? And hold the same estimation means, do they still have that same reputation they did when he was in the city? Are they so followed? So means sort of the same way they used to be followed, with the same enthusiasm. And Rosencrantz responds, no, indeed they are not. And Hamlet is shocked. He says, how comes it? You know, how did that happen? Do they grow rusty? Or are they just down on their practice? And Rosencrantz says, nay, their endeavor keeps in the wanted pace. In other words, no, they aren't rusty. Their endeavor keeps in the wanted pace. Their work retains its usual schedule of performances. So what's the problem? But there is, sir, an area of children, little auses that cry out on the top of question and are most tyrannically clapped for it. You'll sometimes still hear the word airy today. It's an eagle's nest or a falcon's nest. And little aeuses are baby falcons or eagles. They don't have the feathers so they can't fly yet. And when he says they cry out on the top of question, that means they're sort of dominating the debate. But you can almost imagine little baby birds in a nest crying out louder than anyone else. And what's the result of their dominance? They're most tyrannically clapped for it. Tyrannically is a great word choice. It can mean overbearingly, but it's like a tyrant. Like everybody else is drowned out by the clapping that happens for them. They're just so beloved. So there isn't an all-Baby Eagle theater company he's talking about. What he means is a direct reference to Elizabethan theater in the year 1600. And look, if you're trying to cut for time for a production, here's your scene to cut. This is one of the most transparent contemporary references in all of Shakespeare's work, swear to God. It's all about this thing that was going on in the year 1600. So obviously Shakespeare had this pretty successful theater company called the Lord Chamberlain's Men that would later become the King's Men when there was a king. And they were mostly made up of adults, except for the boys who played women, because that makes perfect sense. And what happened around 1600 is there suddenly became a craze for groups of all-children performers. It's pretty weird when we think about it before, little kids acting out adult plays for adults, but it was like the hottest thing at the time. And I'm sure it lost Shakespeare's company business, and I'm sure Shakespeare looked down on this in a big way. He had spent his whole life writing for adult actors, and suddenly this group of kids comes along, and he puts all his criticism into this exchange. Rosencrantz goes on. He says, These are now the fashion, and so berattle the common stages, so they call them, that many wearing rapiers are afraid of goose quills, and they are scarce come thither. So they're the new trendy thing, and they so berattle the common stages. Berattle is a great new verb. It sort of means to berate or scold. And what are the common stages? It's the public stages, as opposed to the private stages the children's theater's performed at, whether it's in court or somebody's house or just a big indoor space. But that adjective common is really pointed because as we remember from Hamlet's first appearance, common can mean it's everywhere or public, but it can also mean low or commonplace. And they've been so mean to the common stages that many wearing rapiers, rapiers are swords, so they're the weapon carried by gentlemen, are afraid of goose quills in other words writers in this case satirical writers who are criticizing these gentlemen so people with real weapons are afraid of tiny little pointy goose quills which is what you write with and how afraid are they they're so afraid that they dare scarce come thither they can hardly or barely dare to come to there to the theaters to hear what's going to be said about them that's another thing about these children's theaters. They were mostly used for satirical plays, which was another big fashion at the time. Specifically in this event that happens around 1600, 1601, when this play is being written, which is sometimes called the War of the Theaters or the Poets' War, when a series of playwrights had a kind of back and forth on stages in which they used to criticize each other. This is people like Ben Jonson and John Marston, who are contemporaries of Shakespeare. Yes, Shakespeare was not the only playwright writing at this time. And they use these plays to attack each other and to attack popular public figures and to generally satirize the culture and life of this time. It's another reason why their plays haven't lasted much is because they're very, very contemporary all the time. Obviously, a John Marston joke doesn't play so well in the 21st century or even in the 18th century, for that matter. So in some ways, this play is Shakespeare getting in on that trend. And it's no wonder that this part of the play hasn't held up especially well, because it's about a thing that was happening in 1600 and 1600 only. So what do we care now? And Hamlet is pretty shocked by this. He says, what, are they children? He's finally gotten that Falcon reference. Who maintains them? In other words, who's paying for them? How are they escoted? Escoted means supported. Will they pursue the quality no longer than they can sing? The quality here is the acting profession. So are they going to stay in the acting profession no longer than they can sing soprano? Like what happens when their voice breaks? Do they have to get out of the job? Will they not say afterwards if they should grow themselves to common players, as it is most like if their means are no better? Their writers do them wrong to make them exclaim against their own succession. So won't they say after their voices are broken that if they should grow up to become common players, in other words, actors in the public theaters, but also he's joking on that other use of common that Rosencrantz just used. And then he has this little parenthetical, as it is most like if their means are no better. Most like means it's most likely if their means, in other words, if their personal wealth isn't any better, they may have to stay actors because what other job are they trained for? So if they do become actors when they grow up, won't they say after that that their writers do them wrong to make them exclaim against their own succession? So these satirical poets who are writing for them right now do them a real disservice by making them exclaim against, in other words, criticize or satirize their own succession, their own future job. So if right now they're criticizing those adult companies, what happens when they're in the adult companies? And Rosencrantz says, faith, there has been much to do on both sides. Faith again means I swear by my faith. There's been much to do. You could almost use that word much ado in the same way as Shakespeare does in another play called Much Ado About Nothing. In other words, there's been a lot of fuss or squabbling on both sides, both the adult and children's theater sides. And the nation holds it no sin to tar them to controversy. So in other words, the people don't consider it wrong to tar them to controversy. Tar means to sort of egg them on or rile them up. This is especially a term for what you do to a fighting dog before you send it off to fight another one. So if anything, the public is trying to get them to fight more. He goes on there was for a while no money bid for argument unless the poet and the player went to cuffs in the question. He says that it got so bad that for a while there was no money bid for argument. That means there was no money offered to buy a plot outline. This is one of the ways that a playwright could sell his writing. You could just sell the outline of a plot and then someone else would fill in the actual lines, sort of similar to how they write TV now. So no one would buy a plot unless it included the poet and the player. In other words, the playwright and the actor, they went to cuffs, they came to blows in the question, in the action or the plot of the play. So no one was buying plays unless an actor and a playwright fought in the scene. And Hamlet's really taken aback. He says, is it possible? And Guildenstern confirms it. He says, oh, there has been much throwing about of brains, which is a pretty awesome way to put it. Brains is nice because it has a double meaning. It can mean both sort of witty criticisms and satire, or it can mean literal heads. So there's been satire going back and forth, but also punches going back and forth. And Hamlet asks, do the boys carry it away? In other words, do the children's companies win the argument is what carry it away means. And Rosencrantz responds with a witty turn of phrase, which is what they like to do. Aye, that they do, my lord. Yeah, they do carry it away. They do win. And what do they carry away? Hercules and his load, too. Now, one of Hercules' famous labors was that he had to steal these famous golden apples. And in order to do that, he had to trade jobs with Atlas, who's this figure from Greek mythology who had to hold up the earth. So Hercules had to spend a little time holding up the earth while Atlas did a job for him. And so Hercules' load is the earth. Or another way to put it is the globe. And this was one of the popular symbols for the Globe Theater was Hercules holding up the earth. So this is kind of like the in-joke to end all in-jokes, especially if this performance is actually happening at the Globe Theater. So that image of carrying the earth is a nice kind of pun on that carry it away, but it also seems to imply that the boys are beating out the Globe Theater and causing some business problems. And finally, after this foray into 400-year-old entertainment practices, we get back to the play. And what's nice is that he's able to turn it into something very relevant to the play, which is how quickly fashions can change. When Hamlet hears that the boys are winning out, he says, It is not very strange, for my uncle is king of Denmark, and those that would make mouths at him while my father lived give twenty, forty, fifty, a hundred ducats apiece for his picture in little. In other words, it's not surprising that this has changed, because my uncle's king of Denmark, and those, the people that used to make mouths at him, that used to make faces at him while my father was alive, when he was just the king's brother, now they give twenty, forty, fifty, a hundred ducats apiece. A ducat is a gold coin that's worth a little less than what a pound is. So these people that used to make fun of him are now spending lots of money for copies of his picture and miniature. And he says, Splud, there is something in this more than natural if philosophy could find it out. And this starts with a wonderful exclamation, Splud, which is short for I swear by God's blood, in other words, the blood of Jesus. But it's a wonderful thing to yell out if you don't want to swear in public. There is something in this more than natural. There's something in this practice that's unnatural, I guess he's saying. If philosophy could find it out, remember that line about there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy? Philosophy, again, is not the study of thought here or ideas. It's science. It's natural philosophy, as they used to call it. So if only science could figure out what's happening, they'd find out that it was something more than natural. So it's a nice little commentary on how fashions come and go. I'm sure Shakespeare is hoping that this fashion goes away soon, and lucky for him, it did. And this section ends because Guildenstern yells out, there are the players. And what's usually done here is that we hear some indication of the players being there, like a trumpet blast. Your Hamlet's excited, so he's going to send them off. He says, gentlemen, you are welcome to Elsinore. Your hands come. In other words, give me your hands. Shake my hand, Goodbye. And then he says, the appurtenance of welcome is fashion and ceremony. Appurtenance means like accessories or something that goes along with it. In this case, welcome. And what is that accessory? It's fashion and ceremony. Fashion is sort of like the fashionable or customary behavior. And ceremony is ceremonial or sort of important seeming behavior. So those are the things that go along with welcome. He says, let me comply with you in this garb, lest my extent to the players, which I tell you must show fairly outwards, should more appear like entertainment than yours. So garb obviously means clothes, but since he's just used that word appurtenance like an accessory, he's extending that to mean, yes, I'm going to welcome you with that kind of fashion and ceremony. And why is he going to do that? Lest my extent to the players should more appear like entertainment than yours. Extent is short for extending, so extending a welcome to these actors. He doesn't want that to appear more like entertainment, like welcoming, than the one he gives to them. And he's telling them that welcome is going to show fairly outwards. In other words, it's going to seem really warm and demonstrative and big because he has to welcome them since they're a visiting company that he loves. He just wants to make sure that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern don't feel like they got the short end of the stick. So he says, you are welcome. But he's going to leave them with one little mystery. He says, but my uncle-father and aunt-mother are deceived. It's a cute way to refer to them. Claudius is his uncle, but also he's his stepfather. And Gertrude is his mother, but she's also his step-aunt. So they're wrong about something. And he knows because Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are spying for his parents, they're going to be really interested and in report this directly to them. And Guildenstern says, "In what, my dear lord? What are they wrong about? And then Hamlet says, I am but mad north-northwest. When the wind is southerly? I know a hawk from a handsaw. Which sounds like standard crazy guy drivel, but may actually have a little bit of a meaning underneath it. When he says he's crazy north-northwest, one way to read that is that it's only some of the time. So in other words, only when the wind is coming from that north-northwest direction is he really crazy. The rest of the time, he's totally fine. The rest of the time, he's totally fine. Like when the wind is southerly, when the wind is coming from the south, I know a hawk from a handsaw. A hawk can be a bird, but it can also be a specific kind of tool. So this might be a way of saying, I can tell apart basic tools. You know, I can understand the obvious most of the time. But he sort of hides it in this madman blather. It's more of this madness with method in it that Polonius was talking about. And right on cue, here comes Polonius. He says, well be with you, gentlemen. Remember, he greeted them when they first entered, and he's finding them again now. Well be with you is just another way to say, I wish you well. And as he's coming in, Hamlet says, hark you, Guildenstern, and you too, at each a hearer. Ark means listener, pay attention. It's a little aside to Guildenstern, and you too, presumably, is to Rosencrantz. He wants a hearer at each ear, so one on one side, one on the other, for him to whisper to. That great baby you see there is not yet out of his swaddling clouts. That great baby, that giant baby you see over there, in other words, Polonius, is not yet out of his swaddling clouts. Clouts is another way of saying cloths, and a swaddling cloth is a baby wrap. So it may be a reference to how Polonius is dressing, but it may just be, look at that baby over there. And Rosencrantz has just the witty response to that. He says, happily, he's the second time come to them. For they say an old man is twice a child. Happily, fortunately, it's the second time he's been in these swaddling clothes. For they say an old man is twice a child. They say an old man is a child for the second time in his life. It's that idea that you start out feeble and then you end up feeble. So life comes full circle that way. And Hamlet has just one more snarky thing to say before Polonius gets to them. He says, I will prophesy he comes to tell me of the players. Mark it. I prophesy, I predict that he's coming to tell me about the actors getting here. Mark it, watch me, pay attention to this. And he goes right into, you say, right, sir, a Monday morning Twas so indeed, which is just a pretend conversation to let Polonius think that they're talking about something normal. So Polonius has presumably gotten right up to them by this point. And so Hamlet's like, yeah, mm mm-hmm, yeah, it's a good point. Oh yeah, Monday. Yeah, sure. And Polonius is always excited when he has a piece of new information to give to a powerful person. He says, my lord, I have news to tell you. And just as he's about to continue with the news, Hamlet says, my lord, I have news to tell you. When Roshius was an actor in Rome, so Hamlet interrupts him. And what does he interrupt him with? The story about this guy, Roshius. So Roshius is the most famous Roman actor. So Polonius has some old news about actors. Hamlet has some even older news about actors. And Polonius responds, the actors are come hither, my lord. In other words, what a coincidence. You're talking about actors. It just so happens the actors are come to this place. And Hamlet teases him back. He says, bzzz, bzzz. Which is the sound of sort of like annoying hovering insect, like a bee or a mosquito or something. So yeah, Polonius is a busybody, but he's also giving out useless information since Hamlet already knows it. So he's just teasing him right to his face. And Polonius finally gets it and he's pretty pissed off. He says, upon my honor. In other words, I swear by my honor, this isn't going to be acceptable. But what he's accidentally done is he's created a new sentence. Polonius says, the actors are come hither, my lord, upon my honor. And Hamlet jumps right on that. Oh, then came each actor on his ass. So if the actors came here on your honor, then they must have come here on an ass, because your honor is an ass, which is a pretty sick burn. And Polonius gets over that, and he just starts publicizing them, as he loves to do. The best actors in the world, either for tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, pastoral pastoral-comical, historical-pastoral, tragical-historical, tragical-comical-historical-pastoral, scene-individable, or poem-unlimited. And these are all different genres. I mean, they didn't get to mix genres quite as much as we do now like horror comedy kind of stuff. Usually a play was kind of one thing or the other. So they're great at tragedy, they're great at comedy, they're great at history plays, they're great at pastoral plays. A pastoral play is just a play that has something to do with shepherds and rural life, but they can also mix them up. Pastoral, comical, comedy about shepherds, historical pastoral, a play about great shepherds in history, tragical historical, a historical tragedy, like about the Romans, for example, tragical comical, historical pastoral, one where they mix up all four genres. How? I do not know. They can also do scene-individable, which means a play with a setting that never changes. You know, Aristotle has this famous treatise on tragedy called The Poetics, and in it he seems to imply that an ideal play only takes place in one setting, like a lot of the Greek plays did. Now, in Shakespeare's time, playwrights had mostly gotten past that, which is why all of Hamlet doesn't take place in one room. But there were still some people who argued that what's called Aristotle's unities had to be observed in a play, or there was something wrong with it. So they can do a play in only one setting, or they can do what he calls poem unlimited. And a poem just means a verse play, and unlimited means it can take place anywhere, all over the place, not just in that one place that Aristotle talked about. Basically, they can do anything. He goes on, Seneca cannot be too heavy, nor Plautus too light. Seneca was a Roman playwright who was famous for those revenge tragedies we were talking about, and Plautus was a Roman playwright who was famous for his comedies. So the tragedies can't be too heavy, and the comedies can't be too light. For the law of writ and the liberty, these are the only men. The law of writ is essentially the law of writing plays. So they can do plays that strictly conform to those Aristotle structure laws. And they can also do the liberty, which is plays that don't conform to rules. In other words, plays that are free from the rules. So for both those kinds of plays, these are the only men. In other words, these are the best actors. And Hamlet obviously knows all those things. He knows this company before. He doesn't have to have it publicized to him. So he launches back into some of his madness talk, and he goes right into a subject that he knows Polonius is going to love him talking about. He says... Oh, Jephthah, judge of Israel, what a treasure hadst thou. It's a Bible reference. If you go to the biblical book of Judges, Jephthah is a character who has to sacrifice his own daughter in order to win a war. So it's another daughter reference. So what a treasure hadst thou. What a treasure you had. And Polonius is totally flummoxed. He says, what treasure had he, my lord? And Hamlet goes, why, one fair daughter, and no more the which you loved it, passing well. You'll sometimes see these lines in quotes. It's because it's a direct quotation from an old English ballad, a song, about Jephthah, the judge of Israel. Passing here means very well, extremely well. So he's just quoting a line from a famous song. And Polonius, of course, hears the word daughter, and it sets his alarms off. He says in an aside to the audience, Still on my daughter. Like, I am totally right about this daughter theory. And Hamlet keeps pressing him. Am I not in the right, old Jephthah? You know, aren't I right about this? And Polonius can only say, Well, if you call me Jephthah, my lord, I have a daughter that I love passing well. But Hamlet replies... Nay, that follows not. And follows can mean it doesn't logically follow, but it can also mean it doesn't come next in the song. So when Polonius asks, what follows then, my lord? Hamlet goes right back into the song. He says, why, as by lot, God wot," And then, as you know, it came to pass as most like it was. And these are sort of out-of-context lines. He's just quoting all the lines he remembers from that particular ballad, because those are the lines that follow in the song. As far as meaning goes, by lot means by chance. God wot" means God knows. And then also the other line It came to pass as most like it was. Most like means most likely. It happened since most likely it was that it would happen. But then he sort of runs out of patience with that and says, the first row of the pious chanson will show you more, for look where my abridgment comes. The first row, the first sort of stanza or section of the pious chanson. Chanson is a French word for song, and pious here just means holy. And why is it holy? Because it's in the Bible. So if you just read the song or listen to the song, it'll show you more. So you handle this, for look where my abridgment comes, abridgment can mean cutting off like an abridged book so it's cutting me off from this ridiculous conversation with you it can also technically mean entertainment so here's my entertainment coming here which is the cue for the player to enter and this is a really good moment in the play i mean after a lot of fairly serious political back and forth and machinations you get the entrance of a whole new group of characters. You get people who are there specifically to entertain. And you also get another echo of that theme of play acting, which you see all over the play. That contrast of how we act on the outside and how we really are inside. It's sort of embodied in these actors. And he immediately gives greetings to these people who he apparently knows. Obviously, when you're the Prince of Denmark, you get to know whoever you want. He says, you are welcome, masters. Welcome all. I'm glad to see thee well. Welcome, good friends." So he's going around saying hello to all of them. Masters here just is another word for sirs. And then he starts saying hello to specific actors in the company. He says, Oh, my old friend, why thy face is valanced since I saw thee last. Valanced means fringed. So it's got a little fringe of a beard on it. In other words, you've grown a beard since the last time I saw you. And he immediately makes a joke on that. Comest thou to beard me in Denmark. And beard means to defy or argue with. It's a nice little pun on beard since he's grown a beard. And then he sees the next actor. What, my young lady and mistress? By her lady, your ladyship is nearer to heaven than when I saw you last by the altitude of a chopine. And when he's calling this person my young lady and mistress, it's a sort of over-the-top way to talk to the person who plays all the women's parts, and that person is probably a 12-year-old boy. But then he takes that word young lady and starts punning on it, by our lady. In other words, I swear by Mary, your ladyship, another way of calling this kid, is nearer to heaven than when I saw you last. Nearer to heaven is one way to say you're more beautiful than the last time I saw you, but what it literally means is you're taller. In other words, you're closer to the sky. How much taller? By the altitude of a Chopin which is a kind of tall, platform shoe. So you're about a platform shoe taller than you were last time I saw you. Pray, God, your voice, like a piece of uncurrent gold, be not cracked within the ring. Pray, I pray to God, that your voice, like a piece, like a coin of uncurrent gold, uncurrent means that it isn't legal tender, you can't use it as money, be not cracked within the ring. And what made a coin not legal tender anymore? When there was a crack extending all the way through its outer ring. So he's talking about his golden voice not cracking, which would happen if the person grew up too much. So the fact that he's getting taller means that this kid is getting older. And if he goes through puberty and his voice breaks, well, that's the end of his acting career as a kid. He's either gonna to have to find a new job as a blacksmith or a bricklayer or something, or he's gonna to have to become an adult actor. And he's so excited, he says, masters, you are all welcome. And then he has a great idea. We'll eat into it like French falconers, fly at anything we see. Yes, it's another reference to falconry. We'll eat into it, we'll even go right to it, like French falconers do. And there's sort of two theories about what that line means either it's that french falconers are totally indiscriminate they'll just send their falcons out to hunt anything or that they're so good that they can catch anything the french are sort of the ones who developed and really perfected falconry but whatever the case what he's saying is you're here we're going to go right at it and what are they going at performance he says we'll have a speech straight straight means at once straight away let's go i want a speech in other words i want a little performance here come give us a taste of your quality you know give us a little example of your ability to act come a passionate speech Passionate just means a very emotional speech. And they're still probably with their suitcases they're like, well, uh, what speech, my good lord? And Hamlet knows just the one. Funny he should ask. He says, I heard thee speak me a speech once, but it was never acted. Or if it was, not above once. So you did the speech for me once before, but it was never acted. In other words, it was never actually performed on stage. Or if it was, not above once. Not more than one time. So why wasn't this play performed more than one time? He goes on, for the play I remember, please not the million. Twas Caviary to the general. In other words, it didn't please the multitudes. The big crowds didn't love it. It was caviary to the general. Caviar just means caviar, and the general's like the general audience, the, the big crowds. It was like a delicacy that most people couldn't appreciate. It's what they say about those shows that have big followings but get cancelled after one season. That's the kind of play this was. But he goes on, but it was, as I received it, and others whose judgments cried in the top of mine. An excellent play, well digested in the scenes, set down with as much modesty as cunning. It was an excellent play. And then in this parenthetical, he says, at least as I received it, as it appealed to me, and also to others whose judgments in such matters cried in the top of mine. So it wasn't just me that liked it. There were also others whose judgment about plays and art cried in the top of mine. In other words, was better than mine. What it literally means is sort of spoke louder than mine. So it was an excellent play, well digested in the scenes digested means sort of planned out or developed so the scenes really all worked well together set down in other words written with as much modesty as cunning with as much moderation or believability so like non-sensationalist so it had as much of that sort of real behavior as it had cunning skill or cleverness and he goes on to describe what one of these people who knew better than him talked about i remember one said there were no salads in the lines to make the matter savory nor no matter in the phrase that might indict the author of affectation but called it an honest method as wholesome, as sweet, and by very much more handsome than fine. So I remember one of these people said that there weren't any salads in the lines. And there's some debate over what salads means. It could be short for salads. In other words, sort of spicy greens. And maybe another clearer explanation is salts. Because what do these lines do? They make the matter savory. And savory can mean tasty or just spicy or zesty. So in other words, there's nothing fancy in them to make it palatable to the masses. And what else wasn't there? There was no matter in the phrase that might indict the author of affectation. So there was nothing in the phrasing or word choice that could indict, that could convict the author of affectation, of being sort of artificial or blustery. So they were pretty simple lines, but what did he do? He called it an honest method, as wholesome as sweet and by very much more handsome than fine. So it was an honest way of working. It was as wholesome as it was sweet. In other words, as healthy or as straightforward as it was sweet, another food word. And by very much, it was a lot more handsome than it was fine. And fine here doesn't mean good. It means decorative in the sense of like finery. So it's like a person who is very good looking, more so than a person that's wearing a lot of pretty clothes or makeup. Surprise, surprise, Hamlet loves the thing that's really good in itself as opposed to having a lot of decoration around it. He cares about the inside stuff more than the outside stuff. And then we're going to go into the speech that Hamlet actually wanted to hear. He says, one speech in it I chiefly loved. Chiefly means above all others. So it was my favorite speech in the play. In which speech was it? It was Aeneas' tale to Dido, and thereabout of it especially where he speaks of Priam's slaughter. So if anybody knows Virgil's poem, his great epic poem, The Aeneid, there's a big section in it about the Trojan prince Aeneas, who, after the fall of Troy, ends up in Carthage in North Africa, and has this tragic love story with the queen of Carthage named Dido. So this is probably a Dido and Aeneas play he's talking about, and especially the long section where Aeneas describes the fall of Troy. Which particular part does he like? The one about Priam's slaughter. Prime is the king of Troy, so it's going to be a speech about the murder of the king of Troy. Gee, I wonder why Hamlet likes speeches about kings being murdered. One thing I'll say about this section before we really start in on it is that it's a tribute. It's a tribute section and a little bit of a parody section, to be honest, because there actually already is a play about Dido and Aeneas, a fairly well-known one by a guy named Christopher Marlowe, who you may have heard of. He did not write Shakespeare's plays. I'm sorry to break this to you. He'd been stabbed in the eye about six or seven years before Shakespeare wrote this. But he writes this fairly unbelievable play called Dido, Queen of Carthage, which most people have never heard of, but which I personally think is kind of amazing. Also, kind of randomly, it was performed by a company of little kids. It's super inappropriate for little kids to be performing. It's all about sex and lust. And the centerpiece of that play is a moment when Dido asks Aeneas to tell her about the fall of Troy. And it's a, it's like a 10 or 15 minute speech that Aeneas has. It's extremely difficult to memorize, but it's incredibly alive and bloody and moving And it does well what Marlowe does well, which is conjuring these incredibly tactile images. Marlowe loves adjectives, loves them. He never met an adjective he didn't love. So a lot of what you get in Marlowe's poetry is this incredibly densely packed, carnal, alive language. And Marlowe isn't just anybody. He is in some ways Shakespeare's biggest rival in the first part of his career. And for a while, they basically trade plays with each other. One of them will write a play, and then the other one will write was essentially a response play. And they go back and forth for five or six plays like this, trying to top the other one until the aforementioned eye-stabbing incident sort of takes Marlowe off the playing field. But really, this is the guy who inspired Shakespeare to raise his game when he was still a young playwright. And what he's going to do in this section is write what is essentially a pitch-perfect Marlowe parody, or Marlowe tribute, because it's not necessarily funny. It's just very over-the-top language, especially compared to the stuff we're used to from Shakespeare at this point in his career. So if you want to take a few minutes out to go back and read that speech in Dido, Queen of Carthage, it's totally worth your time. It's not a requirement by any means, but I do award extra points for it. Anyway, let's get into it. So Hamlet says, if it live in your memory, begin at this line. Let me see, let me see. So live in your memory is a great way to say if if you remember it. So if you can start at this line, and he's just thinking back, seeing if he can conjure it up. The rugged Pyrrhus, like the Hyrcanian beast... Who's Pyrrhus? He's the son of Achilles, the great Greek warrior. He's the one who leads the sack of Troy, coming out of the Trojan horse, and he kills Priam. So, not only is this section about the killing of a king, it's also about the son of a murdered father taking revenge on an enemy king. Double reason to like it. And what's the Hyrcanian beast? The Hyrcanian beast is a tiger. Um, Hyrcania, which was a region of Central Asia, had these famously savage tigers, who have since all been killed off, unfortunately. And notice the thing that this speech does. It gets the play back into verse. Now, obviously, it's from a verse play, but it's a very sneaky way to get us all back into verse in our minds. And especially since it's an older style of verse, it suddenly feels like the play has shifted completely. It's a nice way to redirect the action and the energy of the play. So he launches into this speech, and then, "'Tis not so. It begins with Pyrrhus." That's not right. I mean, I know I have the first line right, but it's not quite there. And then he remembers it. The rugged Pyrrhus, he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble when he lay couched in the ominous horse, hath now this dread and black complexion smeared with heraldry more dismal. Sable arms means black armor. Sable is also how you describe the color black when it appears on a family coat of arms, but it's a very old-style way of saying black. So his arms, his armor, is black as his purpose, as black as his intentions, as evil as his intentions. Did the night resemble? It resembled the night in its blackness. When? When he lay couched in the ominous horse, when he was concealed inside the ominous. Why ominous? Because it's unlucky in the sense of it being a bad omen to the Trojans. But I always thought the idea of an ominous horse was fairly hilarious. So what has he done? He has now smeared his dread and black complexion Dread means terrifying or dreaded by enemies. And complexion just means appearance, not necessarily the color of his face. It means that he appears all in black because his armor is black. So he was totally dressed in black when he was inside the horse, but now that he's out, he has his dread and black complexion smeared with heraldry more dismal. Heraldry is another coat of arms reference, but it can also just be the symbols on a suit of armor that identify who a soldier is. So he was in total black, but now something has changed. And there are much more dismal-looking symbols on his armor. And what are those symbols? Head to foot, now is he total jewels, horridly tricked with blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, baked and impasted with the parching streets that lend a tyrannous and a damned light to their lord's murder. Jewels is what we call red when it's on a coat of arms. So now the guy who used to be covered in black is covered in red. And tricked means decorated like he would decorate a coat of arms. But in this case, he's horridly tricked with what? With blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons. So they've opened up the horse and busted into the streets and now he's going wild, killing everyone inside in the streets of Troy, no matter who they are. And since Troy is on fire, the blood is baked and impasted. Paste is actually where we get the word pastry from. So in other words, all this blood has covered his armor has been baked by the fire into a kind of crust on him. And the streets are parching, which means that they're drying out because of the heat. And this fire lends a tyrannous and a damned light to their lord's murder. It's a cool adjective to choose, tyrannous. It can mean oppressive or overbearing, but it's also literally a tyrant, like a bad king. And damned like hell. And that's what's lighting the way to their lords, in other words, to the king's murder. And you can see how sort of thick and dense this language is. That's straight Marlowe, even a little bit early Shakespeare. In something like Titus Andronicus, you'll see this kind of language all over the place. This is what the late 1580s and 1590s were all about on stage. How high and over the top and descriptive can you get your language to be? And Hamlet's getting really carried away. He says, start with this line and he's still going. He says, roasted in wrath and fire and thus or with coagulate gore with eyes like carbuncles, the hellish Pyrrhus old grandsire Priam seeks. So roasted, this is another way of saying baked as we had before. And what is he baked in the fire, but also in wrath, which is violent anger. It's one of the seven deadly sins, but that has baked him down too. And what else is he? He's orsized with coagulate gore, which is an amazing phrase. Orsized means coated so completely that you actually appear like you're another size bigger. So there's a layer of blood which is making him look huge. Coagulate just means that it's coagulated on his armor. With eyes like carbuncles, a carbuncle is like a red glowing jewel. The hellish Pyrrhus old grandsire Priam seeks. And this is a thing they did very often early, but even to this time in writing where you try to manipulate the language so that it ends with a really strong verb. So it's not the hellish Pyrrhus seeks old grandsire Priam. It's old grandsire Priam seeks. And grandsire is just another word for grandfather. And then I think Hamlet figures out that he's gone on a little too long and he stops and he says, so proceed you. Like you can go on from there. And Polonius never misses a chance to suck up. He says, for God, my Lord, well-spoken with good accent and good discretion. For God isn't a golf term. It means I swear before God, in front of God. That was very well-spoken. You performed that really well with good accent. Accent means a sort of quality of speech or the way you talked, and good discretion. Discretion is judgment or discernment about sort of where to modulate your voice or what to emphasize, but it's a sort of stock formal way to describe a performance, and Hamlet really could care less what Polonius says. So anyway, he hands it over, and he gives it over to what's sometimes called the first player or the lead player. It's the guy who would be playing the lead. Essentially, it's the guy who would be playing Hamlet in the production of Hamlet. So he picks it right up. Paris was looking for Priam, and the first player starts. Anon, he finds him, striking too short at Greeks. Anon, soon, he finds him, he locates Priam. What is he doing? He's striking too short at Greeks. He's surrounded by Greek soldiers, and he's just doing wild swings of his sword that aren't quite reaching them. His antique sword, rebellious to his arm, lies where it falls, repugnant to command. Antique just means it's a very old sword. And why is his sword rebellious to his arm? It rebels because it's refusing to follow the commands of his arm. In other words, he's very old and he's not strong enough to make it go where he wants it to go. And his sword lies where it falls, repugnant to command. Repugnant here doesn't mean disgusting. It means that it's refusing to follow or reluctant to follow his command. So gravity at this point is more powerful than his own strength. And finally, Pyrrhus enters the scene. Unequal matched, Pyrrhus at Priam drives, enraged strikes wide, but with the whiff and wind of his fell sword... The unnerved father falls. So why are they unequal matched? I mean, number one, one of them is a king and one of them's just a sort of minor lord. But also because Pyrrhus is much younger and he's probably a better fighter at this point in his life. So it's not an equal match. And Pyrrhus drives at Priam. He swings at him with his sword. In his rage, he strikes wide. Wide means errant or off the target because he's too angry. And this is what happens when you lash out against the guy who killed your dad. You make mistakes. This is also going to be important later in the play when Hamlet tries the same thing so he misses him on this first drive but what happens with the whiff and wind of his fell sword fell means sort of cruel or terrible sword and notice those repeated w sounds all this alliteration these repeated consonant sounds are very strong in this early kind of writing so just from the wind that came off his sword striking wide the unnerved father falls and why is he unnerved because he's weak he doesn't have strength so the old grandfather falls down just from the force of the wind behind his blow You also get kind of a cool play on words. You have the fell sword and the father falling. So fell obviously means something different, but you have fell and falls. And next, then senseless Ilium, seeming to feel this blow, with flaming top, stoops to his base, and with a hideous crash, takes prisoner Pyrrhus' ear. Senseless means that it can't actually feel anything, because after all, Troy is an inanimate object. Ilium can either refer to Troy itself, or it can just refer to the Tower of Ilium, which was sort of the main tower at the center of town. It's senseless, but it seems to feel this blow. So even this inanimate object almost feels this attack on its king. With flaming top, stoops to his base. So the top of it stoops, it falls down or crashes down to its base. So there's been a massive collapse, either just of the tower or of most of the city. And with a hideous crash, takes prisoner Pyrrhus' ear. So there's this terrible crash of city falling down. And there's a beautiful image of his ear being taken prisoner. So that sound makes him stop. What happens? For lo! His sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, seemed in the air to stick. So because of this, lo, behold, look. It's a great word that kind of catches your attention and gives you that sense of stopping. His sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam. Declining means falling down. He was just about to swing his sword down on the milky head. Why milky? Because it's white with his extreme advanced age. Of Reverend Priam. Reverend doesn't mean he's a priest. It means that he's respected or revered. So it was falling down, about to split his head open, and it seemed in the air to stick. And the word stick is just beautiful for making this scene pause. That hard K sound, stick. And then silence. And then you have this moment of almost like a freeze frame. So as a painted tyrant, Pyrrhus stood, and like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. So Pyrrhus stood looking like a painted tyrant, like the picture of a king. So he's so still that he looks like a painting, or in our case, a photograph and like a neutral to his will and matter. A neutral here is like a neuter, someone who's unable to act. And what is he a neutral to? His will and matter. So will is what he wants to do, and matter is his cause or the business he's here to do. You know, he wants to kill this guy. It's his job to do it. And what does he do? He does nothing. And look how short that verse line is. We've had these very regular verse lines and then suddenly did nothing. Silence, 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 silence. That's another way to put silence into a verse line is to just end it early. This is another great reflection back on Hamlet, because obviously he has will and matter too to kill that king, and he's done nothing too. Because remember, it's actually been a little while now since the ghost told him to get revenge, and all he's done is this madness thing. So this classical monologue is starting to reflect back on him in very personal ways. So we have that silence, but it can't last forever. The player goes on. But as we often see against some storm, a silence in the heavens, the rack stands still, the bold winds speechless, and the orb below as hush as death. Anon the dreadful thunder doth rend the region. So he does nothing, but just like we often see against some storm, immediately before some big storm, that there's a silence in the heavens, it gets very quiet in the sky. The rack, a rack is a big bank of clouds, stands still. The bold wind's speechless, which is a great way to talk about the winds as not having a voice anymore, as though they're out of breath. And they're usually very bold, they're usually very strong, but now they're speechless. And the orb below, as hush as death, the orb is just a reference to the globe or the earth itself, as hush, as silent, or as hushed, but that's a beautiful way to phrase it. So, right before a big storm, we see total quiet everywhere. Anon, soon, the dreadful thunder doth rend the region. So, pretty soon after that silence, the terrible thunder rends the region, means literally tears up the sky. But that poetry is incredibly active. Rend the region. You hear those Rs. So that happens with a storm, and it's also going to happen here. So that was just an analogy for what's about to happen. So after Pyrrhus's pause, aroused vengeance sets him new a work. So in the same way, after Pyrrhus paused, which is another one of those poetical alliterations with those two Ps, Pyrrhus's pause. So after he pauses, aroused vengeance. Aroused is like rekindled or brought up again. And that vengeance is a vengeance for his father's death. It comes back to him, and it sets him new a work. It sets him back to work again, back to the job he was going to do. And what does he do? And never did the Cyclops' hammers fall on Mars' armor, forged for proof etern, with less remorse than Pyrrhus' bleeding sword now falls on Priam. So this is a whole bunch of classical references, which is another hallmark of that early drama. The Cyclops, as you may know, are these one-eyed giants, and their job was to work as blacksmiths for the gods. Mars was the god of war, and the Cyclops made his armor. And forged for proof etern is a sort of old-timey, poetical way of saying that they were shaped in a furnace to be impenetrable forever. So to last without being damaged forever. So their hammers that made this incredible armor was even less pitiless and strong than Pyrrhus's bleeding sword now falls on Priam. So it's a great classical comparison. So this guy is tearing apart Priam even worse than these people with the giant hammers. And notice it isn't Priam bleeding, it's the sword bleeding. So he's cutting him up so much that it looks like his sword is bleeding. And notice again, it's a short line, now falls on Priam which is another way to interject some silence into the speech, because there's going to be a real tone shift. Out. Out, thou strumpet fortune. And we've seen that image before, remember, earlier in the scene? Fortune is a sort of promiscuous woman who goes from man to man. So in this case, Fortune has abandoned Priam, who used to be this great king. Now he's left as low as he can be. So the actor here, or the playwright, is calling for Fortune to get out because it's betrayed Priam. All you gods, in general synod, take away her power. General synod means something like a unanimous vote. Sort of like general assembly. So all the gods should get together and agree to take away the power of fortune to make men fall or rise. What else should they do? Break all the spokes and fellies from her wheel and bowl the round nave down the hill of heaven as low as to the fiends. Remember we talked about fortune's wheel? She's usually pictured carrying a wheel with some people at the top and some people at the bottom, and it's cycling around, so nobody's anywhere for very long. Well, he's calling on the gods to break off the spokes of that wheel. Fellies are the rims of the wheel, the outside rims of like a wagon wheel, and bowl the round nave. The round nave is sort of the central hub of a wheel that the spokes are sticking out of, and that's all that's going to be left after they've broken off the spokes and fellies. And he wants them to bowl that down the hill of heaven, down Mount Olympus as Lois to the fiends, all the way down to hell. So this is such an outrage to him that this king was murdered in this way, that he wants to see fortune's power to do that again taken away totally. And then suddenly the player gets interrupted. in verse, of course. As Lois to the fiends, and then Polonius says, This is too long. Which is a great way to sort of pop the spell that we've gotten into with this beautiful, incredibly dense language. He just says, This is too long. He's getting bored. And this drives Hamlet bananas. He snaps at him. He says, It shall to the barbers with your beard. It's like oh it's too long well then we should send it off to a barber along with your beard which is also too long shall means it will go off to the barbers this may be another dig at polonius for being too old and he turns right back to the actor and he says prithee say on in other words keep speaking go on he's for a jig or a tale of bawdry or he sleeps he in other words polonius wants a jig which is a kind of skit that includes some dancing and sometimes after a tragedy you'd have some people come out and do a little comedic skit with some dancing in it so he'd prefer that to your beautiful speech. Or he wants a tale of Baldr, He wants a dirty story. Or he sleeps. Or maybe he fell asleep and just when he woke up, he wanted to say something. So he said, this is too long. Say on, come to Hecuba. In other words, keep talking. Get to the part with Hecuba. And maybe the first player at this point skips down to the Hecuba section. He says, but who, oh, who had seen the Moblud Queen? Moblud is a very old-timey way of saying with a veil on or sort of muffled would be another way to say it. But her face is covered in cloth. And Hamlet says, the Moblit Queen. He really likes that. And Polonius, just because Hamlet likes it, wants to jump on. He says, that's good. Moblit Queen is good. Another example of that guy trying to look like he has good taste. And the first player continues on from the Moblit Queen, who had seen her run barefoot up and down, threatening the flames with Bisson room. So she's threatening the flames. How is she threatening? She's threatening to put them out. With what? With Bisson room. Bison is like a Middle English way of saying blinding. And room usually means tears, but it can literally be any fluid that comes out of your eyes or nose when you're crying. So the fact that she's crying so hard is actually threatening to put out the fire. And she also has a clout upon that head where late the diadem stood. And for a robe about her lank and all her teamed loins, a blanket in the alarm of fear caught up. Clout is an older way of saying cloth. Remember, like swaddling clouts. So she has a cloth on her head where late the diadem stood, where very recently the crown was standing. So she's replaced her crown with just a piece of cloth. And for a robe about her lank and all or timid loins, instead of a robe around her lank, in other words, gaunt, skinny, and all or timid. Or timid means overproductive because Priam had 50 sons, which means that Hecuba probably bore a lot of them. So her loins are now skinny and or timid because they produce all these children. And instead of a rope, she has a blanket caught up in the alarm of fear. In other words, she grabbed it up in that sort of agitation of fear when the city started being sacked. So maybe it's the blanket she is in bed with. So the queen of Troy is now wandering around basically naked and without her crown on. So he paints this picture of her and then he goes on, who this had seen with tongue in venom steeped against fortune's state would treason have pronounced. So whoever had seen the sight of Hecuba in such a state would have pronounced treason against fortune's state. They would have declared treason against the rule of fortune. Basically, we should overthrow fortune because it's done this awful thing to the queen. Another way to read this line is that the treason is actually by fortune against Hecuba. Because remember, she's the queen of Troy, so the treason can be what fortune has done to her. And how would they have pronounced this treason? With tongue in venom steeped. Steeped means like soaked in it. Their words would have been that venomous in declaring treason because this was such a terrible sight. But if the gods themselves did see her then, when she saw Pyrrhus make malicious sport in mincing with his sword her husband's limbs, the instant burst of clamor that she made, unless things mortal, moved them not at all, would have made milch the burning eyes of heaven and passion in the gods. So forget a normal person. What if the gods themselves actually saw her when she was seeing Pyrrhus making malicious sport? In other words, like playing maliciously in mincing with his sword? Mincing is like a cooking term. It means to chop up finely. And what is he chopping up? Her husband's limbs. And you get those nice strong M sounds with malicious and mincing. And You also have that cool image of the gods watching her while she's watching Pyrrhus. So if they saw her then, the instant burst of clamor that she made, that sudden burst of noise that she made in watching it, unless things mortal, unless the concerns of mortal humans don't move them at all, that noise would have made milch the burning eyes of heaven. Milch means moist. It's from the same word as milky, but it's definitely an old-timey sort of word. The burning eyes of heaven can be the gods' eyes, but really what they mean are the stars. So the stars would have become moist just watching it, as though they were the eyes of beings that became sad listening to her cry out. And passion in the gods, it would have stirred strong emotion in the gods themselves. Sort of a beautiful image to end on. And Polonius has another thing he'd like to say. He says, look, where he has not turned his color and has tears in his eyes. Prithee, no more. And where he has not is sort of the equivalent of our, well, look, if it isn't, or, well, look, if he hasn't turned his color, in this case that means change the color of his face, presumably to red and sad, and he has tears in his eyes. And Prithee no more is a nice way to be like, oh, please, what is this over-the-top acting? And look what else Polonius has done. He's brought prose back into the play after these long verse speeches. He's like a big prose wet blanket in the middle of all this beautiful heightened verse. And Hamlet says, tis well, I'll have thee speak out the rest of this soon. I'll have you finish speaking out this speech soon. And then he turns to Polonius and asks him, Good my lord, will you see the players well bestowed? And that good my lord is probably hard for him to say. In other words, my good lord. Which is probably not something he thinks Polonius really is. Will you see the players well bestowed? Bestowed just means lodged or housed. He wants to make sure they're taken care of. Do you hear? Let them be well used. And used here means treated, not just used, in the sense of used for their performances. And why does he want them to be Well used for they are the abstract and brief chronicles of the time. And you might think from the sentence structure that what he's talking about is the abstract chronicles and the brief chronicles, but no, an abstract is a thing. An abstract is like a summary or a digest or like a distillation of something. Sometimes you'll see like an article having an abstract, which is a summary right up front. Chronicles are like a history, a history of the time. And what's brief about them, it's like they're the summary history. So what he's saying is that the job of an actor in some ways is to sum up what's going on in the culture. So Polonius should treat them well because after your death, you were better have a bad epitaph than their ill report while you live. So you'd actually be better off having bad things about you written on your gravestone after you die than having their bad publicity of you while you're still alive. And this line is a great example of what's sometimes called an antithesis, where you have two halves of a sentence sort of opposing each other. So it's better to have this bad epitaph after you're dead than their bad publicity while you're still alive. And Polonius, who isn't very fond of them, just says, my lord, I will use them according to their desert. You know, I'll treat them according to what they deserve. Their merits as people, not dessert in our sense of either cake or a place that's full of sand. And this really whips up Hamlet. He says, God's bodykins, man, much better. This is probably as close as he comes to swearing in the play. Bodykins is just a way of saying little body. So I swear by the body of God, by Jesus's body on the cross. Much better. Use them much better than just what they deserve or merit. Use every man after his dessert and who should scape whipping. If you treat every man according to what he deserves... Who's going to escape being whipped? You know, in other words, we're all sinners. So if you actually treated everybody the way they deserve to be treated based on what they've done, nobody would escape being punished for that. Use them after your own honor and dignity. So in other words, treat them according to your own honor. And dignity means rank or nobility. So treat them like an important person should be treated. Because after all, you know, players and actors were just regular guys. They didn't have any high title. And Hamlet's telling him to treat them like he would want to be treated. Someone of his rank. But of course, then he turns it around. The less they deserve, the more merit is in your bounty. So he's implying that his honor and dignity actually isn't much. So if they don't deserve very much, just think how much merit, how much worth would be in your bounty, your gift. So if you treat them well when they deserve nothing, that's a great gift on your part. So it's kind of a double burn. He tells Polonius to take them in and Polonius says, come sirs. Hamlet tells the actors, follow him friends. We'll hear a play tomorrow. Notice the verb he uses. At this time, you didn't talk about seeing a play. You talked about hearing a play because after all, there wasn't a ton to see in a play. There wasn't any set to speak of. There were decent costumes. You came there to hear the language, but he's announcing, oh, we're going to have a play tomorrow. So everyone goes out except for the guy who gave that long speech, what's sometimes called the first player. Hamlet keeps him back. He says, "Dost thou hear me, old friend? Can you play the murder of Gonzago? So he's asking him to play a specific play called the murder of Gonzago. And the first player says, I, my Lord. Sure. Yeah, we can do that. We have that play. Because remember, companies at this time had probably 30 or 40 plays memorized that they could just launch into at any time. And that's great news. Hamlet says, we'll have it tomorrow night. In other words, we'll have that play performed tomorrow night. But he's got another request. You could, for a need, study a speech of some dozen or 16 lines, which I would set down and insert in it. Could you not? So for a need means if necessary. So if I needed it, could you study, could you learn or memorize a speech of about 12 or 16 lines that I would set down that I would write myself and insert into the play? Couldn't you do that? And this is really cool because when we do eventually see the play, there's a lot of debate over which those dozen or 16 lines are that Hamlet's written and inserted into it. If anybody has a really strong candidate, I'd love to hear about it. And that's no problem. That guy's a professional actor. He says, I, my lord, sure, we can do that too. Hamlet says, very well. Follow that lord and look you, mock him not. And look you means make sure. It's really interesting to hear this after Hamlet's just had this really not great interaction with Polonius and has torn him to pieces. That He tells the actors to make sure that they don't mock him. Almost like Hamlet's the only one who gets to make fun of this guy. He's a little bit of a sweetheart when he tries to be. And then he turns to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Did you remember they were still on stage? I did not. He says, my good friends, I'll leave you till night. You are welcome to Elsinore. He says, I'll leave you. But what he really means is you should leave me. Rosencrantz replies, good, my Lord, which is just another way of saying yes, sir. And Hamlet responds, I, so, God be we. Yeah, that's it. God be we is literally short for God be with you, but it's also where we get the word goodbye. And then he launches into his second sort of major monologue of the play. And it starts with this phrase, now I am alone. Which in some ways is a way you could start almost every soliloquy, because they often happen with a bunch of people on stage leaving until just one person is left. But alone could mean much more than just I'm the only person left on stage. There could be a sense of loneliness too. And the sense you get is that something's been building up inside of him over the course of these long speeches, over a very long scene where he's on stage for a lot of it. There's something he's been wanting to get off his chest. And the only person he can talk to, even more than Horatio, is us. He wants to unburden himself here. So he turns to the audience and he says, Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. And notice we're back in verse again. A rogue is essentially someone with no principles. And peasant, especially when an important person uses it, implies that someone who's really low, kind of the worst of the worst. You can get something similar from slave, someone who's just base and awful. I mean, he might as well be punching himself in the face in this line. And why is he so bad? Is it not monstrous to this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit. Monstrous is a great way to put it. He's become a monster because this player here, this actor who was just here, but in a fiction just for fake reasons, in a speech that isn't even true, in a dream of passion. Passion is strong emotion, and dream is a wonderful word to choose here. Going back to that idea of dreams as shadows. So this isn't even real strong emotion. It's just a dream, a shadow of strong emotion. So, with those nothing reasons, he can force his soul so to his own conceit. Conceit is his imagination, what he imagines. So, he can link his soul so much to his imagination that from her working, from the working of his imagination, all his visage wand. Wand means pale, so his face grows pale just from what his imagination does. Tears in his eyes, distraction. Distraction can be sort of agitation, but it can even mean insanity, craziness. In his aspect, aspect means appearance or expression on his face. A broken voice. And his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit. His function, his whole being suiting with forms means matching his outward appearance and his actions to his conceit, to his imagination. And all for nothing, for Hecuba. All that emotion, all that change in his appearance for an imaginary person, for Hecuba. And see again, that line ends short. There's silence there, almost as though Hamlet is kind of bowled over by the fact that this person can get so emotional about a fake person and he can't do anything with it. He's just stunned into the silence by the fact that this actor can get so worked up over a fake person. And what can Hamlet do? He goes on, "What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her?" Like Hecuba isn't his mom? She's not even real. So how can he cry for her? And then he turns it on himself. "What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have?" So what would he do had he if he had the motive and the cue? And motive and cue essentially mean the same thing, but notice that cue is a theater word. It's an acting word. The cue is the other person's line that cues you to say your line. So if he had the motivating factor for passion, for strong emotion that I have, in other words, an actual dead father to mourn, what would he do if he had that real emotion? He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. This is a beautiful image that he cries so much that he actually drowns the stage in his tears. What else does he do? He cleaves the general ear. Cleave means to split apart, and the general ear means the ear of the audience. Like the general public. With horrid speech, horrid meaning that it causes horror in people who behold it. So the emotion would be so strong that the public's ear would literally be split open with his terrible speeches. What else would he do? He would make mad the guilty. He would make the guilty go insane, but make mad has those strong M sounds, which is a much stronger way to say it. And he would appall the free, the free of the innocent, basically the people who are free of guilt. That's another one of those antithesis examples. The guilty go crazy, the free are appalled. He would confound the ignorant. He would amaze, basically, or stun the people who don't know about the crime and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. A maze can also mean to stun. It comes from the word maze, like you're stuck in the maze and totally confused. The faculties of eyes and ears are sight and hearing. Basically, he would completely blow out everyone's sight and hearing. That's how strong the emotion would be if he had my cause instead of just this imaginary one. And then he has another short line, which is a beautiful transition between sections. Yet I, which is the turn on himself, yet I, a dull and muddy metal rascal, peak like John of dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing. He's dull, he's stupid, and muddy-mettled. Mettled is sort of like spirited, so he's, he's muddy-spirited because he's indistinct and doesn't know what to do. He peeks. Peeks means like moping around. Like John of Dreams, which is sort of a way of saying sleepyhead, someone who's sleepy and inactive. Always dreaming and never acting. He says he's unpregnant of his cause, which is a pretty cool word. Remember, Polonius talked about his replies being pregnant. But in this case, unpregnant means unmotivated by or sort of unresponsive to his cause, the death of his father, and can say nothing. Because remember, he hasn't told anyone about this murder yet and this revenge. No, not for a king, upon whose property and most dear life, a damned defeat was made. Not even for a king. To Say nothing of a regular person got killed. We're talking about the king of Denmark. A damned defeat, defeat here means destruction or ruination, was made on his property and his life. So he was killed, but he also had his kingship and his property stolen from him. And you see those, and you see those repeated D sounds, dear, damned defeat. It really rams it home. So he hasn't said or done anything. And so all he can do is turn on himself and ask, am I a coward? Who calls me villain? Breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face. Tweaks me by the nose. Gives me the lie in the throat as deepest to the lungs. Who does me this, huh? So why am I doing this? Is it because I'm a coward? Well, what if someone calls me a villain or breaks my pate across, h- hits me in the head? It's what a pate is. Plucks off my beard and blows it in my face. This was a fairly standard insult you could give to someone. You could take a little of their beard hair out and blow it in their face. This lie is also the source of many terrible Hamlet beards. And another insult tweaks me by the nose. Gives me the lie. In other words, accuses me of lying. In the throat as deep as to the lungs. In other words, as far down your throat as you can go. That's how much they're accusing you of lying. So does anyone do that to me, huh? So whoever insults me that way, as a coward and as a villain, he says, swoons. I should take it. This is another one of those oaths or sort of mild swear words. It's short for by God's wounds, I swear. Like, shoot, I should take it. I should take that insult. It's probably true. For it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter. Or ere this, I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's offal. And this is a very old myth about pigeons, which is, you know, they're a little sort of sweet and plump and benevolent. And one of the reasons they explained for this was that their livers didn't have enough bile in them, which is what gall means, another word for bile. And that was one of those four substances in your body. In this case, the liver was supposed to be the site of anger. If you ever hear someone referred to as lily livered, white livered, it's because they don't have enough black bile in their liver. So they're a coward. He says, it cannot be, but I am pigeon livered and lack gall. It has to be that I'm a coward. I have the liver of a pigeon. I can't get angry. To make oppression bitter. You know, Bile had a sort of bitter taste to it. And what that whole phrase means is to sort of resent the injustices done against me or against my father in this case. Or air this or by this time, before now, I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's awful. I should have fed. In other words, I should have fattened all the kites. A kite is a scavenging bird of prey and region means of the sky or of the air. I should have fed them with this slave's awful. The slave here is Claudius, this terrible person's guts, his entrails. So that guy should have been dead and rotting and eaten by birds by now. There's also that nice parallel of the pigeons and the kites. There's a lot of birds in this sentence for some reason. And he's really worked himself up against himself as this terrible, unloving son and a coward. Because why else would he delay this long? And when he calls Claudius the slave, then he's off to the races. He says, bloody, bawdy, villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless, villain, oh, vengeance. And it's another string of adjectives like the one he had when he first heard about him. Bloody because he murdered his father. Bawdy, that's sort of lewd or lecherous because of the way he behaved towards his mother. Remorseless, treacherous, lecherous. He doesn't have any remorse for what he did. He's treacherous because he killed the king. Lecherous, again, it's that bawdy thing. And then kindless. It's not that he doesn't have human kindness it's that he isn't like his kind he's unnatural he's inhuman remember less than kind and he yells for vengeance he's going to have his vengeance but notice again it's a short line and we have another silence why what an ass am i i am such an idiot this is most brave that i the son of a dear father murdered prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell must like a whore unpack my heart with words and fall a cursing like a very drab a scullion upon it Faw. he gets very sarcastic about himself here he says oh yeah this is so brave that i who am the son of a, a father i loved very much who was murdered and i've been prompted to my revenge i've been encouraged to take my revenge by heaven and hell which is interesting because it makes it seem like he still hasn't decided whether the ghost is real or not but heaven and hell are telling him to kill him because after all this guy is a murderer even if revenge is against the law so instead of acting he has to do what he has to like a whore unpack my heart with words Unpack is like what you do when you've been traveling with a really heavy bag. You take some stuff out of it. So he's, it's like unburden. He has to take the burden off his heart, not by acting, but with words, in the same way that a prostitute would do. They have a hard life, but they can't express that in public, or they're not very good at their job. And he has to fall a cursing, like a very drab. So he falls to cursing, you know, just saying mean things about his uncle, like a very drab, another word for prostitute. A scullion. A scullion is like the lowest kitchen servant there is. The person who like scrubs the floor and the pots. And then these words, FI and FOE, you can sort of hear what they mean by how they sound. They're kind of expressions of disgust, like spitting words. He hates that this is what he's become. Someone who can only talk about doing things instead of actually doing things. So it's time to really get to work. He says about my brain. And about here means like get to work brain. Hmm. I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have by the very cunning of the scene been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. So he's heard that guilty people, when they're sitting at a play, have by the very cunning of the scene. Cunning just means skillful writing or performance. So they've been struck so to the soul. It's got them so much in their soul that presently, that immediately, right at once, they have proclaimed their malefactions. In other words, they've confessed the evil deeds that they did. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. So even though murder can't speak for itself, it will speak with a miraculous organ. An organ is like an instrument. So even though murder itself can't talk, it finds a way to get that information out. Maybe through the person who actually committed the murder confessing. And he goes on with his plan. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. So I'll have these actors act out something that resembles the way my father died in front of my uncle who killed him. And look, one way to play this speech here is is that he gets this idea suddenly. He's like, I have to do something. Okay, this is what I'll do. Then again, we've just seen him tell the main actor, could you play this play in front of my uncle? Could you put in this speech where it really resembles the murder? So it's possible that when he told that to the actor, he wasn't totally clear on the details and here he's solidifying it or here he's just solidifying his desire to go through with this plan. But whatever happens, he has a plan to get his uncle to confess publicly. And what's he gonna do while this play is playing? I'll observe his looks. I'll tent him to the quick. He'll be watching how Claudius is watching the play. I'll tent him to the quick. The quick is like an incredibly sensitive part of the body. Like if you imagine the flesh underneath a fingernail. And tent is like digging around inside a wound. So what he's going to do with this play is hit his uncle in his most sensitive place. As directly as he knows how. If he but blench, I know my course. Blench is sort of like our word blanch; It means to turn pale. So if all he does is just turn pale seeing this, then I know what I have to do. He might actually confess and that would be great. Then Hamlet wouldn't have to do anything. And then he makes this sort of amazing confession Hamlet does. He says, The spirit that I have seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. So maybe the ghost I saw was actually the devil. Remember, this Protestant audience didn't believe in real ghosts. They thought they were either angels or devils. And it was possible, even for a Catholic, that it could be the devil. So the devil has the power to take on a shape that's pleasing to the eye. The devil could have made himself look like my father and made me do this without my uncle actually being guilty. He's starting to doubt the truth of the ghost's story. Yeah, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. Yeah, and maybe out of my weakness, in other words, taking advantage of how weak and melancholy I am, because the devil is very potent with such spirits. The devil is very powerful when it comes to these weak and melancholy people. Spirits here doesn't mean ghosts. It means these people. Remember we said that depressed or crazy people were very susceptible to seeing ghosts? Well, he's saying that the devil is actually really good at controlling people like that with ghosts. So maybe what the devil is doing is he's abusing me to damn me. Abusing means deceiving me. And to damn me means to send me to hell. And what is he going to be sent to hell for? For murder. If he kills his uncle, especially if his uncle isn't actually guilty of the murder, he's going to go straight to hell. So if it turns out it wasn't really the ghost of his father, all he's done is fall prey to the devil's plan to get him to go to hell. And after Hamlet has talked himself into this plan, he says, I'll have grounds more relative than this. Grounds is just a legal term. It means a reason to do this act, more relative, more relevant or substantial than this. This in this case just means the ghost's word alone. He needs better reason than just the fact that some see-through version of his dad told him to kill his uncle to actually take that incredibly consequential step, because if he kills his uncle, that has real consequences for Hamlet. And then he ends with another rhyming couplet, which sweeps us off stage. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. I got to tell you, this is an incredibly famous line, but I think it's kind of weak. I think thing is a really weak word choice. Shakespeare occasionally not amazing, but it totally rhymes with king. So he's talking about the play almost like a trap that he'll use to catch the king's conscience. You get those repeated C sounds, which really sends us out on a high note. He's using it to trap the king's conscience in the hope that the king will incriminate himself. So after starting out this monologue, really devastated at the fact that he hasn't acted yet, he leaves with a new resolve. He has a plan. He's going to put it into action. And that means that as soon as this play happens, we're going to see his first shot at killing Claudius. So it sets up this incredibly loaded situation for that play scene, which we're going to see pretty soon. It's really as active as we've seen Hamlet in quite some time. And with the end of that soliloquy... Act 2, scene 2, one of the longest scenes Shakespeare ever wrote, is finally done. Thanks for listening. I'd really appreciate it if you could help to make this podcast possible. Go to clearshakespeare.com support and throw a few bucks my way. And then I hope you'll come back for part 5, which includes probably the most famous speech Shakespeare ever wrote, and also maybe the most misunderstood speech that Shakespeare ever wrote. And they're the same speech. Okay, I look forward to it. Bye.